I'll find myself when I'm dead. A podcast, a popularity essay. Are you having a bitch in summer, Saint Germain? Is it summer yet? We keep t- we keep we keep debating this. <laughs> oh, it's been summer for like a month. It's like 102 degrees outside, and I still feel like it's not summer yet. I still have three months. I know. I I feel like I don't know. Maybe it's better to work a little bit. Also, am I just deluding myself? Like, because I do have to like reacclimate myself to like the 40 plus hour work week once we start again in September because right. I let it unravel. So maybe it's okay. But like, dang, like I've been like. Waking up every morning and drinking coffee and going and reporting for work just like normal. It's just different work. But yeah. Yeah, no big deal. Um, but I do have to start today. Hey, everybody. Happy summer. I hope you're having a bitch in summer with a confession. What's that? I have an apology to make. A mea culpa retraction, redaction, correction. Just, What's that? So you know how I did the stapler anthology? Yes. You know how I was kind of in charge of it? Yeah. Are I thought you, it turned out well. Yeah. Well, guess what? What? I forgot to put somebody in it. <laughs> oh, my God. You left somebody out? <laughs> I had no idea. It's probably because you hate them, right? No. No. Stop it. Uh, <laughs> no. I Well, so for starters, I mailed out the stapler anthology things, and thank you so much to everybody who let me know that you got them, and a couple of people are putting it on social. Uh, a special props to the people who are taking pictures of the wayward staplers, uh, staples <laughs> popping out of the spines. Um, I honestly think that's kind of great. But um, then Harrison, who we know and love, who's asked us a great yeah, question, sure. was like, uh, where's my seahorse essay? And I oh, was like, no. I had I, I'd never even known that Harrison had written a seahorse essay because um, you sent it as like in your email. And so there when I went through my emails of all the submissions, there was oh, nothing with right. his name on it. It was just another Justin St. Germain oh, email yeah. that I ignored. Like I always I think do. it was, was it in the, I can't remember if it was, we got it in the, in the podcast email or it might've been in the, the online submission form. Yeah. I think it was something like that, but it's okay. not, I mean, it's not Harrison's fault. It's totally my fault for like never reading any emails from yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just ignored it. So I'm going to make it up. If we can, if we can do just sort of like a ridiculous final episode like at some point next week or this summer i if with harrison's permission i will uh do a dramatic reading of his really interesting scientifically provocative short seahorse flash piece it's like 200 words long and then from now on i do still have like 15 more copies of the stapler anthology so if you want one let me know i'll mail you out one um uh, I will, you know how we talk a lot about hidden tracks? Yes, I do indeed. We'll have a hidden Thanks. bonus track that's Harrison's Seahorse essay. Okay. So those of you that already got the Seahorse anthology, you've got the original, but um, there is a, a new oh, sort of Oh, you're reissue, like, okay. Yeah, um, and then the staples will be just as bad because I returned to the stapler, so now I don't know so what So now it's do. just, okay. Maybe I could sew it or something. That'll take another six months. But anyway, Harrison, I will make it up to you also by like, sending you a treat or something. I think I have a couple of like silly treats that I can send or, um, you know, what do you want? I don't know. I feel terrible though. Like, can I mean, you I'm sure it's an honest mistake. He, he probably doesn't give a shit. He's yeah. Like, yeah. I was just humoring you with your sad anthology, <laughs> but that's so me. Like that's going to be exactly what it's like next year when I'm running the department. Like I'm going to forget to pick up the guest at the airport. You know what I mean? Like, 
There's going to be so <laughs> just be prepared. Wait, our director picks up guests at the airport? Oh, you know it's, I'm going to have to do all that. There's going to like all of the infrastructure is going to collapse. There's going to be some email that doesn't get sent and like all of a sudden like we're not going to have heat anymore or something. <laughs> but look, David's here. <laughs> David is here. Hi. How are you, David? Hey, baby. Hi, how are you? David is here for a stapler anthology reason as well, but it's a much better reason than my mea culpa. Okay. David has made us the cocktail that is on the back page of the stapler anthology that uh, we call the I staple your face. Have you tasted it? <laughs> no, no. But David, can you tell us what's in it before we uh, drink it? It has grappa, <laughs> strega, amaretto, capoletti, lemon juice. Okay. And it's all poured over large ice and stirred in the glass. So it's not like, it's not shaken or stirred beforehand or diluted at all. It's just made in the glass. I'm not super familiar with Capoletti. Is that an Amaro? No, it's an Aperitivo. It's like a, it's similar. It's in the family of like Aperol and Campari and that sort of thing. But it's, it's wine based. It's a little less of like the that really metallic kind of gentian yeah, uh, yeah. Campari flavor. Okay, um, and then it's also it's wine based, so it's got a little bit more of like a, a kind of just like a, a a different kind of depth of flavor, a little bit um, subtler. Okay, uh, so, so what well, and why when I forced you to make a cocktail for the Stapler Anthology, why did you come up with the I staple your face with these spirits and this name? Well, there. I think you came up with the the name. <laughs> That's right. And I then did. these are all Italian, obviously. It's like, you know, it's in keeping with your uh your uh my fake heritage. Yeah, your, your <laughs> phrase phraseology. Um and uh yeah, and I just started I, I always I like the idea of a grappa cocktail cuz grappa is hard to uh blend. And uh, <laughs> and so and I've only had a couple of good ones, but then on top of it I made this one up. Uh, without ever tasting it until recently, you know. So I just kind of in my mind thought that these might go well together, and I'm pretty pleased with it. All right. Um, well, so you should taste it, but I I, I like it. Um, and this is with an Oregon grappa, which I was pretty <laughs> I was pretty scared to use. Yeah, like dark grappa. There's not brown, a lot of brown yeah. grappa. There's not a lot of grappa around here, and I drove like to three different liquor stores, and I finally found an Oregon grappa called Sinister, and it's um and it's made the old fashioned way. It's made out of like the 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 husks of the grapes after like Willamette wineries have turned it into wine. After, I love they send the, the skins to to this company that then I mean that's the way like grappa is traditionally made. But usually when you have a good grappa, you have like an Udavi, which is like made from the grapes, um, okay. more like a brandy. Oh, okay, uh, I didn't know that. But, well, that's uh, kind of in keeping with the stapler anthology too, because I had to drive all around town and I found the one stapler in Benton County that was long enough. It was still inadequate. And yeah. it was still inadequate. And then you found the one grappa yeah. and it's brown. Yeah. But it tasted it, pretty good. It's a little weird to see that, but you know. Um, it's better than that last thing you brought over. Remember that non-alcoholic gin when we were That trying? was horrible. Yeah. yeah. That was unfortunate. Right, well, let's yeah. have a drink. This is what it sounds like, America, North America. It's a peachy color too. Oh, that's nice. Isn't I was it? not. I was expecting something much, much harsher than that. Right? It's actually, yeah, it's pretty. Is light. this like a Long Island iced tea where it tastes really pleasant? But I'm going to start screaming about about bikini kill. I mean, <laughs> it, it's probably fairly strong. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's got like a, it doesn't taste that strong, right? It's, I like this. I think this. Is, I think it's nice. Yeah, this is delicious. It's not like light on fire strong, but pretty strong. Okay, it's not light on fire strong. Okay, but the things that like the capoletti is low. 
And amaretto is is low in alcohol, but then Streg is eighty proof. Grappa is this Grappa is eighty proof. Okay. Um, uh, lemon juice. Then again, it's not it's not diluted at all, so it's probably stronger that way. But mm. I like the way it came out. Um, yeah, it's yeah, just good. Yeah, it's got I a like nice uh, nice color to it. You know. Well, it's, cheers to. I don't know. It would be a, like even yeah. slightly nicer color if it was a clear grappa. You know. <laughs> it looks all right. It's yeah. what is it? It's like an amber. It's close. I mean, I yeah, guess the the amaretto looks was, like tang. Or I guess Tang is a little orangier than this. I mean, another excellent and very sophisticated drink. Mm-hmm. Astronauts drink Tang, man. Yeah, it's engineered. Did you know Gatorade, by the way, was named after the Florida Gators? Yeah, that's where it started. Wow. Yeah, it was like Gatorade and it was like the, the Nike, for what Nike is to University of Oregon. is that's the yeah. Gatorade. Do they still make, make like contributions to FSU or... Oh, or is I don't it? Know. Why is it? Oh no, it's Gators. Is Florida? Just yeah, UF. UF. Is it UF? It must not be FU. Oof. It must be UF. Yeah, yeah. I Which guess. one did Tim Tebow play at? Was that him? Florida. Yeah, jean shorts. Yeah. All right. Yep. Well, um, I'm trying to think of a transition, and I have nothing. Tebow, Bo, Tebow, Florida Gator, Gator, Gator. I was thinking about the cocktail, but I don't know. Co- staple, staple. Bo- yeah, I can't do it. What are you trying to do? We're trying From to transition that to the into the project? topic. Uh, which is another good reason why we have David here, because he is the person who knows the most. <laughs> I know nothing about this subject. You know about plays? You write plays. <laughs> I know about the theater, but like I don't know nonfiction theater. Mm. Oh, yeah. great. Oh, okay. This is this is a world that you uh, you know know a lot more about than I do. Oh, okay. Well, maybe if we have a thing that we don't understand about the theater in general, then well, you can tell us. I mean, I hear you are now officially an expert on the nonfiction theater. Right. As of a couple of days ago, you gave a lecture. So, you know, so why don't you, I mean, I don't know really much of anything either. Yeah. So okay. maybe um, start us off with what does that mean? So I gave the lecture last week and then a week and a half before I had finished a grad seminar about it. And then in January, I taught an undergrad seminar about it. So technically I should be a lot more confident about this, 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 I don't know. I guess it's a subgenre. Like is that what it, inter- okay. I don't know. This is what I'm calling it: the intersection of nonfiction and theater. So, like, because you know, like, have you ever heard this thing where people are like, "Well, in the 1960s, like, nonfiction is theft, right?" David Shields, and then like in the 1960s, Shields didn't say this, but somebody did. Nonfiction stole from journalism reporting to make literary journalism. Oh, right, yeah. And then in the, the 1980s, yeah. they stole from memoir to make create, or they stole from fiction to make creative right. nonfiction memoir boom. And then they stole from poetry to make a lyric essay. Okay. And so then my contrarian ass is like, well, great. So the next thing we're going to steal from is theater. Okay. I'm going to try to get in on that. So then I started looking around at like where, like where in plays, like contemporary ish plays, plays that have been written in the past, like 25 years are people doing the kinds of things that we associate with nonfiction, not like Hamilton, I mean, you know, although I guess that's kind of nonfiction. Okay. It's like history versus, is that like the history version versus like the nonfiction? Yeah, like his, yeah. that's like historical fiction. Right. Also, okay. there's like a bunch of shit is completely made up in Hamilton. Like, right. Uh, but, um, it, and I like Hamilton, but like this is like the documentary impulse as expressed in theater or the essayistic yeah. impulse, which I don't think this play that we're going to talk about today is necessarily an essay, but some other plays that I could talk about, I think are the, like the more contemporary plays are starting okay. to get pretty essayistic. And huh. yeah, this is very much like a documentary. 
to me. Yeah, like, a, I, like a documentary kind of. Yeah, like that makes sense. Documentary. I don't know. Is that, I don't know what the terms are, but I call it documentary theater with the students because I think they. I think that makes sense to them instead of like nonfiction theater because right. then it's like yeah, like well then. Isn't Richard the Third? Right. He's made yeah, a, yeah. Like, isn't Richard the Second nonfiction theater yeah, like Caesar, a history yeah. play, you know, or whatever? Um, speaking of Richard the Third, by the way, um, I, we we were going through some boxes and we found a picture of David in 1994 playing Richard. Is the that Third. the one he posted on? Is that what he's okay? Yeah, we had the goatee. Yeah, yeah. he had was, some real devil eyes in that. Uh, uh, that's what he looked like when I met him. Uh, the gigantic black devil eyes. And that's like eight years before you met me. Yeah, they got worse. I think you still have devil eyes. I mean, Mm. it's weird to think that that's like 27 years ago. Yeah. Wow. That's just a crazy thought. 1994. Yeah. Every time somebody says 1994, I'm like, oh, it's 10 years ago. I know. It just really (laughs) freaked me out. Yeah. (laughs) It's just like a grown person. Yeah. Yeah. We have grad Mm -hmm. students who are younger, who were not alive when you played Richard III. Yeah. Like adult grad students with leases. We have second year grad students who are younger than that. We've graduated people with MFAs long before they were, even, you were 24 when you played Richard III. We've graduated people who were the same age that you were with MFAs. I was 24 when I got my MFA. You were? Yeah. Wow. I turned 25 the summer after. I turned 30. It was great. Anyway, um, but yeah, so yeah, documentary I think is is kind of like where it's at. I think I've always kind of been into it because there was kind of a boom in it when I was an actor. Like a lot of the plays okay. that I teach were written in between like 1998 and 2008. Is that how you came to it? Like when you were when you were when you were acting a lot, it just happened to be a thing. Or I think so. I mean, it seems like it also must have related to what you were into. You were already doing journal. You know, you were doing yeah. some nonfiction stuff. Yeah, and I've always associated theater with research, which I think is like most people just like. But when you're an actor, even if you're acting in a in like a Shakespeare play, you're supposed to kind of do some work, right? You're supposed okay. to look and see. Like, I loved reading like old ads from like Victorian England if I was in a play that was set right. in like 1898, and like you'd like walk into the rehearsal room and there'd be like a board that the dramaturg made with like a whole yeah. bunch of information and maps, and they'd give you the right shoes and they'd. Sometimes if it was like a really good play, they'd tell you like if you were a woman playing a woman, like how far apart your knees could be at any point when you were walking or sitting or standing, wow. you know, like, so there was like, you, you, you looked into the world. That would make me so self-conscious. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody tell me how many inches my knees had to be apart. Sometimes they tie them together. They tie, tie your knees together if you couldn't and walk right. And then when I was, when I played a guy, they would, um, they would put stuff on the toes of my shoes so I would keep my feet moving forward so that my hips, that uh, so you wouldn't lead with your hips. Wow. Mm. When I That's played Jack and the importance of being earnest. Mm. Anyway. So were you, and did you go, I mean, because it makes sense that you would be a world-recognized expert on nonfiction theater because those are kind of like your two, the two things you've done professionally, right? Like you've been a nonfiction writer, I mean essays but mostly, but like you've also been a journalist, nonfiction writer, also an actor. And so like, what was the order? Was it the same time you got into both or were you, mm. was one first? Uh, I guess I did, I mean, I did, I, I guess I, I was, I studied nonfiction in college and did theater on the side. And then I did, I guess I kind of did it both at the same time, but you know, it's kind of like, I wonder if you feel this way. Like there comes a point in time kind of professionally where you're like, what can I, what space can I carve out for myself? Mm -hmm. And of course, because I'm an idiot, like I'm just starting to try to think about how I can do that. 
where before I was like, I'm just going to talk about essay forever, but that's too big of a field. Yeah, right. And you really do, especially if you're going to be an, an academic. But like you're thinking about true crime, right? Yeah, for me it was true crime. And I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but like it's not like you your destiny and all you want to do is talk about true crime. It's like, oh, this is this is an avenue in which I can spend some time that might have a series of professional reflections that are both helpful and maybe easier that might like make your life a little easier. If you're like, if you just sort of camp out in like a sub, a sub field. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't know that I, I don't know. Is that intentional? I mean, I think in, in like some weird ways, true crime kind of chose me. Um, but like, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what the whole, like the latest book is all about really. But it's like, I mean, I think it's like you, you also have to think about, positionality and like well what can you really speak to right like what mm-hmm. is your life led you into you know because you, you can try to pursue I want to be an expert on like I I probably could have just been like I just want to be a memoir expert like you're saying but it's too broad everybody's yeah. a memoir everybody's written a memoir everybody's a memoir expert or whatever and there's not a whole lot left to say about it you know what I mean mm-hmm. so you kind of you find like a and I there isn't a not a lot of people had been talking seriously I think about true crime but anyway mm-hmm. yeah so I think it's also kind of like about your life, you know what I mean? Like what your experiences are that you're drawing on. I think it, that, that it comes into account. And I think that's one of the reasons why I also thought it would be interesting to talk about this play. Right. Because the things that I read in your book about true crime, representation of victims, hmm. covering things like violence in America, thinking about community, like, but especially sort of the, the first things that I brought up. I think that this play, Laramie Project, by Moises Kaufman, and uh, well, it was developed with the Tectonic Theater Project. I think it's known as it's what's known as a devised play. Okay. And this is the kind of stuff Dave, that David can really talk about. But um, what is that kind of? What's like a you know two sentence definition? It's devised from what's that? Like a devised play means it's devised from. I, I mean, in, in some ways, it means that the it's devised uh, out of any number of things. But you're not you're walking into the room without a script. Oh, you know, okay. Um, so w- different companies would bring different things into the room, and some of that might be text, you know, some like mm-hmm. extant text or archival stuff okay. or interviews or whatever, but other companies would start without any words at all, you know. The theater wow. company makes the play yeah. rather than okay. a playwright brings the play to the theater oh, company. Okay. In some cases, like the playwright is very, uh, like, completely decentered like not really part of that I think the company has kind of created the, the project and a director even takes sort of the main hand of like mm-hmm. curating the text that is created in the room or yeah. it's like you know improvised in cases um, other versions of it a playwright kind of presides over this and then sort of makes a document out of everything that's kind of happened mm-hmm. in that room and, okay. and then that document is treated like the text of the play so is it like is it accurate to say it's generally a little more collaborative, a little more of like yeah. a collective author kind of yeah, deal? Yeah, very, very yeah. much. Okay. Um, Which is really interesting when you start thinking about positioning yourself into a place where you can report a crime against a person right. that was not you. Yeah. Right? Like when, yeah. from a true crime perspective, yeah. once there are more people that come in and there's a collaborative impulse that generates the text, like – that immediately, I think, makes the nonfiction conversation maybe not more interesting, but it adds a layer to the nonfiction conversation that I think yeah. is worth studying, sure. right? And in the case of this particular play, uh, so I think most people probably know about the murder of Matthew Shepard in October 1998. Um, it, he was uh, 
attacked by two people who were about his age uh, and died from his injuries about like 10 or 12 days later. He was sort of left uh, out in the cold in in Laramie, Wyoming. And um, it caused this kind of like media storm almost immediately. Like people, yeah. people were paying attention to it, especially because he and were no, were because he was a gay man. Um, it got this like national attention, and then a few weeks later, really, really close to when this happened, um, the Tectonic Theater Project, which is run by this guy named Moises Kaufman, who wrote one of my favorite nonfiction plays ever, which hopefully we'll talk about. Um, he and the company, they wait, what is it? It's called Gross Indecency, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde. And, okay. And oh, yeah. He mentions the trial of Oscar. Yeah. Yeah. He had just kind of, intro. I think because that play was so successful, I think he, he got the license and the money and the backing and okay. the clout to be able to do what he did, which was take an entire theater company from New York City to I was Laramie, Wyoming. Okay. And they made, I think, like four or five trips over the course of about 18 months. They were there for the trial. Okay. Uh, they were there for a lot of the media circus. And they just interviewed people. Um, they usually tape recorded them. But there were 10 theater professionals. Some of them were actors. Some of them were writers. He's a director and a playwright. And they just kind of descended on the town and um, tried to get a picture of I mean, tried to get a picture of, I think, the town. I mean, he says the central question for him was, like, what can we do? Right. Because this was still a time where, like, they were trying, they were mounting a defense. The killer's lawyers were mounting a defense that was kind of like a Twinkie defense. defense. Yeah. Yeah. So there was no hate crime legislation really in the country, um, but especially not in Wyoming. And um, it, it was the opposite, where, like, your homophobia could protect you could be an excuse for murder. It could be a defense. So I think the, what can we do that Moises Kaufman asked was, you know, um, he's gay and he writes a lot about, um, sort of the stories of gay people. Gross indecency certainly is about that. Um, I think that was kind of the original impulse, right? Okay. So then, but then it's all these like, you know, New York theater types that like have never had chicken fried steak before. Like, you know, they're, they're definitely outsiders and then they show up and they do these interviews and then they take it back to New York and they turn it into this play, which I think they they debuted the play in Denver, which is like yeah. two hours from Laramie. It's kind of the closest Lort theater, like, right. like big regional theater. Um, and the play is like, they, 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 they use this technique that Kaufman talks about called moment work. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty interested in that. Which is like, I mean, it's like a devised theater kind of concept where it's like, we're not going to make scenes. We're not going to tell things chronologically. We're going to take this interview transcript material, this research, these artifacts, and we're going to turn them into these kind of topic-based vignettes, right? Yeah. But they He's, really just seem like interviews. But He says it is a, uh, a technique I developed called moment work. It is a method to create and analyze theater from a structuralist or tectonic perspective. For that reason, there are no scenes in this play, only moments. A moment does not mean a change of locale or an entrance or exit of actors or characters. It is simply a unit of theatrical time that is then juxtaposed with other units to convey meaning. Right. I mean, theater, like theater and visual art, I think are really good at like philosophies and manifestos in that they do it a lot. And then I don't know. And, and all of like, and both David Shields, 
a manifesto. That's right. It's the no. only nonfiction manifesto I'm, I'm familiar with. It's true. Well, yeah. And um, I mean, I, I, I like living in a sort of manifesto-free genre, honestly, because <laughs> like, well, I mean, well, this is kind of, not to like overly monologue, but like Kaufman and the other like kind of big nonfiction theater, American nonfiction theater person, Kaufman is from Venezuela, but his company is American. Okay. Is uh, this woman named Anna Devere Smith, who's like yeah, sure. on the West Wing and Blackish and stuff. She's a MacArthur genius. So is he. They both are really inspired by this manifesto by Bertolt Brecht, who is this like 30s, you know, theater, like oh, theater of the absurd, right? Yeah. And like, you know, like kind of Marxist German, really interesting theater guy. He kind of co wrote Mac the Knife, the Bobby Darren song. I don't but know. That's that. not okay. why we should know him. Um, what that, I think what he's saying there, what Kaufman is saying there connects to the fact that both he and Smith are just really into this manifesto street scene by Bertolt Brecht, which says theater shouldn't be like transportational. You shouldn't create this other world where the audience is just sort of like, ah, oh, you know, like they just get overwhelmed. They're transported to another world. You never see the backstage. You never see anyone enter it. It's all just like, it, like just this overwhelming kind of Disney world operatic kind of thing, which a lot of theater was like this well-made seamless play. He, he was really interested in the idea of sort of breaking that down. Um, And I think moment work sort of responds to this. And, and in this manifesto street scene, Brecht says, you know what the theater should be? It should be just like a dude who's witnessed a traffic accident telling the cops and the people who show up a little bit late, what happened. Nobody expects that dude to become the truck driver or to become the person that got hit in the road. He's just got to give like an accurate-ish portrayal. We understand that he can only see what he can see. And and then it's got to inspire a kind of action in the people that are listening to him. It's got to inspire okay. the road crew to look for X, Y, and Z and the lawyers and the insurance company. But he's What's- like, why can't theater be that? Was Brecht also because in the, there's a little introduction which I was really glad to be able to read in mm-hmm. in the version you gave me of the Laramie Project where it's uh, Moises Kaufman is a page and a half just kind of explaining what it is I guess and he says um, I'm wondering if this is Brecht or if this is him who kind of also locates what you're talking about that sensibility as a response to film and television. Because he says, Mm -hmm. um, the quote is, in an age when film and television are constantly redefining and refining their tools and devices, the theater has too often remained entrenched in the 19th century traditions of realism and naturalism. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like it is a response. Yeah. To like the, because I mean, Brecht would have been also like, film was very much on the rise and like, you know. Yeah, he used film a lot in his plays too, which then was a way of sort of anti-theatering it Okay. You know, like he was like p- pulling this low art form in. But no, I think, and I think what Kaufman, I've heard him say this. Um, there's this really amazing audio version of the Oscar Wilde play that the LA Theater Works did that like I checked out from the local library streaming. Okay. It's great. And then uh, at the end of it uh, is an interview with Kaufman, and he says, you know, film and television have us beat in so many yeah. ways. They have the theater beat. You know, like we've got to stop trying to be real in front of, we've got to stop trying to think that we can create these realities because there's just, they've actually invented a new version of reality. There's so much reality. And of course now this is, you know, 20 years before TikTok, but that's very true too. I think it applies to writing as well. Like I know because plays are designed to be performed, but I I think it applies to narrative modes too. I think so too. And And I I don't think a lot of people agree with that, but I think it's so obvious to me. 
I, I think I think a play like this is trying and and I think Brecht's street scene, which he quotes in that introduction, right? Like I think they're both going, in what ways can we make this look can we show the limitations of theater in a way that highlights what theater can actually do? And so like if, if film and television can now transport audiences in ways that like theater can't and, and if like, like what kinds of things can performance make? And then that's so interesting to, to cross reference that with like, what interesting things can performance make with something that really happened or with an impulse right. that is documentarian in nature? Yeah. You know, like, like what could theater do about the fact that this happened is such yeah. an interesting question. And I don't know whether or not this particular play has like stood the test of time. Although um, it is the only play that my undergraduates know. Like, okay. I mean, other than Shakespeare, like, and when I teach, they already class, know it. Even before you teach it? Hell yeah. Like really? I, I taught this, this class in 2016 and then I taught it again this year. And this is the one that, you know, high schools huh. are still performing scenes from because you're playing real people. You're playing contemporary people. The scenes are short. And, you know, it's about things that I think a lot of theater kids are still thinking about. Like, you know, what does it mean to be gay in the world? And what are people talking about people who don't, you know? I'm trying to imagine a high school theater doing this play and on one hand i think that sounds great for the students on the other hand i'm like wow mm-hmm. this play <laughs> has cow. very easily been done more by uh community theaters rustic theaters and high school theaters than it's it has ever been done by professional theaters do you feel i have know nothing about the theater uh do you feel like as actors like i feel like there's maybe a degree of pressure in a play like this because of like the historical referent, because the thing you're like, the people you're playing have real, they exist in the world. Like yeah. most of them probably still exist in the world. Yeah. Half like of that re- seems like a weird challenge or I don't know. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things about this kind of theater, but it's also super dangerous. Like the, you watched that documentary about Matt Shepard, right? Yeah. Matt Shepard is a friend of mine. Yeah. Like, uh, a few months ago, it's it's been. A, I don't remember it super well, but I remember liking it a lot. Where this woman who went to high school with him yeah. interviews all these people in his life. Literally, twelve of those people are characters in this play. Okay, so they still exist. In 2013, they were being interviewed. You yeah, know, I was going to ask you. That's when that was made. I couldn't remember. I, like I knew that, it was yeah. well after. It was yeah. like well after the events. And it, it, it's just so. And, and then not only like does someone play you know the cop who found him or whatever, who then you know she she had to like go on AZT and like, you know, there was this like sort of interesting kind of harrowing story on her part, but like that person, that actor plays not only her, but like a conservative Christian minister who's preaching like homophobic stuff because there's like 43 characters in this play, but there's usually only about 10 actors. Oh, okay. So everybody's got like four parts. And the actors play, because written into the play are this tectonic theater project. So the actors play the nervous yeah. theater people who come to town and keep journals and think about things. So there's okay. so the incrimination now belongs to the company as well as the town of Laramie. You know, like the thing okay. that the thing that gives you pause yeah. is now like those real people are also being represented by like a 13-year-old kid who doesn't know how to pronounce the word Laramie or you know or whatever. Yeah. Like that's interesting. I hadn't thought about any of that, but Wait, that's pretty interesting. But if you think about Brecht's street scene argument, like that's 
that's a real embodiment of that, right? The idea of this guy sort yeah. of reporting the traffic accident and 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 taking away the like capital A actorism of it and asking somebody to sort of like, even if they're a pro, like reinvent themselves and play another person and another person yeah. and another person. That's just not real. Like they can't change costumes. There's no set for this play. Like because of that thing that you, you read out loud, like it, it breaks down a lot of these artifices and then the artifices that are left kind of turn this into this weird like middleman. It's like middle, it's like the middleman theater. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we never think that any of these people are the people because they're switching. Yeah, there's a moment on like early on where I I didn't I was this is explaining it what you're saying, but it's I think it's a stage direction that says he transforms into sorry and I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Just trying to imagine how that works on a on a mm-hmm. stage, you know what I mean? Where one person is like the narrator and then transforms into yeah. Yeah, it's like, and because of the way that design thing that you read that Kaufman is interested in, the, that the moments don't really mark a change of lights or set or scenery, right. a guy stands up and puts on a cowboy hat and he's the sheriff. He okay. takes off the cowboy hat and puts on a pair of glasses and he's the head of theater at the University of Laramie. Okay. He takes a white cloth and slings it over his shoulder and he's the bartender that saw Matthew Shepard leave with the two people who mm. killed him. Like, And you just... They they don't put wigs on them, you know. They don't like they don't move into a different set where there's like a sea monster or whatever. It's just like these these tiny. This is why the the, the play travels so much is because it's really affordable, right? Like, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but also like that, it's like the person becoming the guy driving the truck and the guy walking across the road. It's like there's no time to think about, I mean, of course, like the actors think really deeply about this stuff and and a good production of this has people who can like really switch. Right. Like, but it doesn't change the fact that it's the same body, right? You're sitting in the audience and you see the same body play six members of a town that has myriad responses to the fact that this thing happened, this true crime happened. And that doesn't, I mean, none of that, I'm glad you're talking about this because none of that, comes through when you're reading it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, I thought a lot as I was reading this about like the problem of being a person who A, is like not super well-versed in like the theater, but also especially just like, it's weird to read a thing. It's like, it's like if I listened to a documentary film and I'd be like, well, I guess I saw that. Right. You know what I mean? But right. like I didn't Or really. if you looked at all the X's and O's and that was watching a football game. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's one thing that we were just talking about this like, like when I taught the, especially the grad seminar, because my undergraduate class had a lot of theater kids in it okay. both times. And they really helped the the whole shebang along yeah, imagine, in great yeah. ways. And anytime you're like, who wants to read? They're like, I do, I do. Weird. Th- but, there's a lot of overlap. I don't know if it's just like the, there's a lot, the places I've taught. There's a lot of overlap between theater people and nonfiction people in the, at oh, the really? undergrad level. I've had a lot of theater kids in nonfiction class, like a lot. That's a high so percentage. cool. I hope, I hope that, I mean. I don't know amazing. if it's, maybe it's just something I'm. I noticed or something and it's not a cool, but yeah. Maybe because theater kids are like often not great at tasks. So they often have to register late and the only classes <laughs> that are open are nonfiction classes. But like, um, wait, wait, we were talking about like with the grad students who did a great job with the class, they kept on saying to me, like, it's really hard to read a play. Like mm. I go home and I read this play and then we come in and we talk about it or we, I showed them like tons of stills and played them. I always played them like video if I could, but they're like, we can't, we can't stop reading this like it's fiction. We can't stop yeah. reading the dialogue like this is all that we're supposed to be working with. And so then David and I were talking about like, 
it would be really cool to teach a class for non theater people, like yeah. how to read a play. Yeah, totally. But then it's like, what would you teach? Because these plays, like they they don't exist for readers. Like they exist for their playbooks, right? Like they, they yeah. exist so that somebody can make a play out of them. So like, like you were talking about how like there's like a whole cadre of playwrights that are just really good at making their plays look amazing on the page. But then the theater companies are like, no, this isn't real. Like this is or amazing. Like in a reading situation, you know, it's one thing to write a play that like, it's often you a pre-production thing that happens within the playwright world is stage readings where it's a bunch of actors with music yeah. stands sitting in chairs. And some plays are remarkable in that context. And they're really not, there's 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 not a next step for them. They they have a lot of musicality to them, perhaps you know or whatever. But it's like putting it on stage is not going to really bring it much further. Okay. And sometimes it's because like writers are get so used to writing for that context or writing within yeah. that context, yeah. and then editing within the context of like you know musical stands and chairs, you know, and yeah. you end up creating something that sort of lives in that yeah. world. So those things, I mean. I've known theater artistic directors who feel like they're bad at reading plays and only want to read plays after they've met the playwright. So I think it's like, it's one mm -hmm. of the things that's kind of challenging is like, you feel like this document is stymieing you unless you sort of know the mentality that created mm -hmm. it. And then you can go back to it. Or maybe, you know, if you start to know the playwright from other work, you can kind of animate it a little right. bit um, when so you're, different. when you're reading it in your mind. But I mean, I've been in shows that we didn't even know the play we were in until an audience showed up. So that was like a whole other thing. It's like yeah. we, you're doing an you're doing a rehearsal run. You think the play is one thing, you know. One play that I did, we thought it was terrible. We were like dress rehearsal night in the dressing room, and my friend turned to me and said, "You ever been in a bomb before? Because you're about to be in one. Like, this is <laughs> the worst play we've ever done." And I was like, wow, this is going to be something. And then as soon as the audience showed up, the entire play mm -hmm. like transformed and it was like hilarious. So yeah. we didn't even feel like we we knew what it was until they were there, which I think yeah. is like- And that's built into the system. Where it gets so challenging. Like you don't open a play until after like eight audiences have seen it. So okay. you perform the play with light sets, costumes, intermission, the whole nine- but there are these things called previews, right? Like, and are they like experts? You have to do it for like critics that tell you what's like wrong. Well, yeah, sometimes, sometimes like helpful people show up, not critics, but like usually it's like students and people who can't afford to pay thirty dollars okay. for a ticket. You come. I used to do that with the opera all the time. You go. They would only have one preview, but like there are. And then there's the famous like musicals, like Carrie the musical that okay. closed on Broadway in previews, or they'd take a play. Like, have you ever heard that phrase? Does it play in Peoria? No. It's like it's like, yeah, sure, this is good in theory, but does it work in practice? Okay, that's because oh, it's not actually about like the Midwest. It's not like does the New York play work in the no? No, it's like will. Oh wait, no, actually, that is what that means. Will it play in Peoria? Actually, means no, that's wrong. No, whoops. Uh, <laughs> does it play in Peoria? I guess means like is it universally acceptable? But like, there's this other concept where like you would before you debuted a play in Bo in New York, you would take it to Boston. Oh, okay, right, and so you would could be because. You Is that why they what, did Denver? I thought it was interesting that they mm -hmm. they did Denver, New York, Laramie. Yeah, I was curious about that. The the what? So in in the I think it's in the introduction maybe or maybe it's at the end. Oh no, it's yeah. In the introduction, he says 
they opened the play in Denver and then they took it to New York and then they took mm-hmm. it to Laramie. And it seems like in November of 2000, which I don't know how, f- I'm guessing that might've been a little while later. Yeah, that's, yeah, my assumption is that, I mean, the Denver Center is one of the mightiest theaters in the country. Okay. Uh, and then they are in New York. And to make a play costs an ocean of money. And I'm assuming that no entity in Laramie either had that money or right. was willing to put that money up. So they probably got took the capital that allowed them to make the show for the Denver Center and for their people in New York. Oh, and then they like were able to mount the show. Okay. You also generally want like a proof of concept run before you go to New York because like the criticism yeah. in New York can destroy you. Okay. And if you don't know yeah. what you're bringing there. I mean, it's the same thing in, in a circuit like in England they often end in London um, and play a lot of like tour a lot of the other cities before because starting out there, I mean, like that was like the thing about Peter O'Toole's. Uh, 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 My favorite year. What's that? My favorite year. No, Macbeth. He oh. he started uh, this famously panned version of Macbeth in London. They got absolutely destroyed, and then became what he was really proud of in this run, this like production that he loved. But then they came back to London and they really couldn't get any momentum underneath them because everybody had decided that it was the worst play ever. Mm-hmm. It still has this reputation of having been like one of the biggest like disasters. And he was like, we were really good by the, I mean, we just yeah. started out so wrong start in the most public place possible, you know, for, okay. for doing what we were doing, you know? So there's a that. lot that goes into that. Cause I was, yeah. I thought when I was like reading that decision, I was like, well, that seems interesting. Cause I would think, the test audience you might want to be most concerned with is Laramie. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I was, I was, but, it, but if there's like financial consideration and stuff, I guess it makes more sense that you and, go in that order. And there might've been some kind of things like, like the thing that David was talking about with like music stands, like something like that might've happened in Laramie oh, right, yeah. earlier or something. But yeah. Um, but it, the Macbeth made me think about that moment where the kid Jedediah Schultz it opens with him getting a scholarship in the play because oh, the angels, yeah, because the angels in America and his parents who are like super, super conservative won't go see him doing a scene from angels in America, mm. but he gets a full scholarship to the university of Wyoming. And then by the end of the play, the university of Wyoming and Laramie is doing angels in America and he's in it. Yeah. And his parents again are like, we don't agree with this lifestyle, but they had just driven to Laramie to watch him play Macbeth. And he was like, yeah. he's a murderer who believes in witchcraft. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you should go see me play a guy who's in love with another guy. And he and he sort of like has this, this trajectory over the course of the play in a series of monologues that take place over like 12 months where he goes from being like, like a lot of people, it's very 90s, like kind of like closeted culture where they're like, yeah. I don't, I don't agree with it, but I don't hate people. Too like I can't yeah. believe I said that. Like I can't believe that I can't. I, I can't believe that I ever like put myself in a position where I would judge someone else. Like he, over the course of the mo- of the reporting, which is then embodied by an actor in two hours, we see him go from, you know, I'm open to playing a homosexual, but I'm going to completely distance myself from that as like anything. To I feel terrible that I did that. You know, like, right. I mean, he's not like he's still, I think, trying to figure stuff out, like everybody in Laramie. But I love that part of the play. Um, I'm also a sucker for like 
like a jock theater kid, you know, like yeah. we always had one when I was in high school, you know, like the, fo- the guy in the off season, like who didn't play football and basketball would yeah. like show up in a funny thing happened on the way to the forum in a toga and sing a song. And <laughs> I'd be like, maybe we can kiss, you know, so. we didn't have theater. So it's completely that whole world. Like high school theater is completely foreign to me, but I, I've had one of my best friends from college was like a theater. He wasn't an actor. He did like the, what do they call them? Techs or something. Uh-huh. They build stuff. You didn't have any theater in Tombstone? No. Rural Arizona, man. We didn't have. But you had a music program because you played the yeah. saxophone? The music plan, The music program was just the marching band for the football team. Oh, they gotcha. only had it in like football season or like that semester. God. Um, there was a stage, but it had been like boarded over. And <laughs> at, at some point there had been like a sta- uh, theater program, but they didn't have one. Holy shit. Um, I, yeah. I don't know what I would have done because I did theater and orchestra and and I guess I did newspaper. I guess I would have done. Did you have a newspaper? No, Whoa. we had a yearbook. Was the, I mean? Oh, yearbook. Theoretically, it was you know reporting, but yeah. In my high school, the yearbook kids were doing it. <laughs> like they were like all doing it with each other all the time. <laughs> That's what we knew them as. Is like like when they had like yearbook parties. It was like don't show up. <laughs> What? The yearbook part. Yeah. That's fantastic. Like, like you know, like. Wait, don't show up. <laughs> and that's that's the party, what I do. That's like the party you want to go to. Apparently they would like put on, they had like, uh, you know how Christmas lights can be on like twinkle timers? Yeah. This is again in the 90s. They strung the Christmas lights and they put on nine inch nails and then all hell broke loose. And Whoa. I was like, no, thank you. I will be staying home and watching Full House and Family Matters. Because <laughs> that is not my style. Anyway. So is this like, did y'all ever do, you said you're not real engaged in like the nonfiction theater part of the theater world, but like, did y'all ever act in these, in any like nonfiction plays? I auditioned for this play because I was like working as an actor in the years where it became kind of popular in regional theaters. Sure. Three times. Um, I always auditioned for the same. Is it like for four parts you're auditioning? Well, you know, they audition a bunch of people and they see what they can do. It's kind of like a menu, right? Okay. So then you look at your company and then you look at the run and it's like, oh, you'll play this, 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 okay. and this. Okay, I got you. Um, can you guess which part I audition for every single time? The cop? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought maybe that would part, be harder. One of the bigger parts. You I asked know, the students female, and it's... they never could guess, but I guess you... Maybe you know, maybe. I mean, she's kind of like the sneaky star. She's like play. Fortune Feimster. I imagine Fortune Feimster when I imagine Reggie Flutie. Who's that? The, the comedian with the curly blonde hair who's from North Carolina. Oh, I've seen her, who, like, I think. used yeah. to eat at Hooters all the time. Yeah. That's who I imagine. And that's the part that I always audition for. Did you do any nonfiction theater? No. I mean, uh, the closest thing to anything like this I ever did was I was in Edward Lee uh, uh, Masters. The oh, Spoon River Anthology. Spoon River Anthology. So that's like a a lot of characters and four actors and you just keep cycling through and changing without yeah. you know and it's like that monologue sort of theater the, in, yeah. in similar fashion to the transformation or whatever okay but, yeah but i didn't you know i don't i've never played anyone or any real life except for joan crawford i've never played anyone <laughs> who was like a real life person <laughs> yeah so like how does this go when you teach it it must go well you teach it a fair amount mm. I think it's kind of like, I think I'm, I, you know, I've, I've been teaching, I think the more years that go by, the less interested people are in this particular play. Um, because they don't remember the historical event as much? Is that why? Yeah, they certainly don't. And then um, I think it 
paints a picture of a town that is in, um, well, like microaggression world, you know, like, so, so they're going around and they're interviewing all these people and even the people that are like really on the side of change, right? Like, um, say things that I think are, I mean, they, they speak to a community in which they essentially kind of support a closeted, you know, like, right. Yeah. yeah. They're like, nobody should get murdered. Everybody should be who they are. But everybody yeah, do, sort of talks about yeah. like, like they say stuff about him. Like, I mean, he wasn't gay yet. You know, like they say yeah. that kind of nineties, will and grace pre will, you know, like, yeah. so like, I think, I think that's hard for students to read, but, um, but there, I mean, yeah, I think so in that respect, I think maybe, but I, I, I like teaching it because I just like the idea of like, so Truman Capote, right? He did exactly this. He just did it with yeah, either by himself or with one other person, depending on, you know, like, I don't know right. how much you see Harper Lee, you know, like, and, and that's in some ways a kind of condemnable, but in other ways it like showed us. Right. The way that the then, right. I'm, I'm quoting you basically here. Like the way that the then thought about these kinds of things, like the way that like his readership yeah. wanted to see these stories processed. I thought a lot about that comparison. And it's interesting because I don't know anything about this playwright, but I was like, because one of the interesting things about Capote was that he was not from Kansas, but he was from rural. Right. Like, very like working class. He was from the South, which I'm sure is very different from Kansas at the time. But like he had a lot of, he kind of knew that world a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and Harper Lee certainly did. And then like, I don't, I wonder a little bit about like, there are some moments in here where I think he's setting it up where like it's making it pretty clear that the company doesn't understand this place. Yeah. And I'm pretty, and it, it is on the page. So I think that's pretty interesting is what you're talking about. It's like, it's kind of like a meta move where it's like about its own creation and it's like mm-hmm. implicating its own makers in various ways. And like, I find that kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, it, yeah. I mean, the idea of just like showing up in a place after like a terrible tragedy and being like, I, I think there's something very weird about that. You have to do it as an artist, but it's like the idea that it's just like, I have the authority to tell this story. Mm-hmm. And I just came here because I read about it in, in a newspaper. But right. I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm the one. Yeah, is a very strange thing. I think it's a bit like a, it's a very complicated and like thorny thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's got to ch- be sort of a, not amplified, but at least like somehow enhanced by the fact that then they went home and as a group had a year's worth of meetings, right? And yeah. then made this. And and then yeah. also it's a portrait of a town, right? Like they don't, yeah. they don't, right. they're yeah. not like investigating. This is the other thing that made me really interested in talking to you about this is because the, your In Cold Blood book argues, I think, like about how like everybody focuses on killers and then like the, right. the idea of a victim, it, it, it gets depersonalized, right? Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, is right. there a better way to say that? Like, no, it seems, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. It's like there's always kind of a, um, there's a lot of like documentary theory stuff about this where it's like basically they don't get represented at all. There's like various mm-hmm. ways that they're represented victims of violence are, but generally the default mode, and Capote has a big hand to play in this, is like not at all mm-hmm. or very sparingly. You know what I mean? Where they're like an accessory to the story of their own death. And like Capote definitely did that. Mailer did that. 
and then it had been entrenched, you right. know. Uh, and so it became like, it kind of gave rise to like the serial killer genre. Right. And then from there, it like, that's kind of changed a little bit. The serial, you remember like when we were kids, like this, the, the, a lot of the books about this, when we were, I mean, I don't know, like up until the mid 90s, Serial killers were like national celebrities. Like yes. everybody in the fucking world knew who Jeffrey Dahmer was. Yeah. And like they were major, they were like some of the biggest celebrities in America. There was like a Time Life book series where you would get a different serial killer's yep. story like mailed to you. Yeah. That they advertised like with a 1-800 number on cable. Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> it start, actually it started, and that's like why there's a lot about this in the book, but like the, it started with Psycho because Psycho was based on Ed Gein. Um, mm. And like vaulted him and like the I idea didn't of serial. Yeah, Psycho what? was based on a on a novel, interestingly enough, which was based on a real story, the real serial killer Ed Gein. Um, huh. And he also then I think was like, I mean, there's so many movies that are based like loosely based on real serial killers, like uh, Silence of the Lambs. I think is like draws on a few different people, mm. one of whom is Ed Gein. Um, you know, Gacy. Mm-hmm. The whole clown thing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like over and over and over again. And yeah, I do think that's kind of... But this this is pretty interesting, I think, in terms of... Because it's like you can't have somebody... You just can't... Well, maybe you can, but it just seems like beyond the pale to have an actor be like, I'm Matt Shepard. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, right. how do you do that? Or, or should you do that? Yeah. I mean, I don't... I, you know. But what? we know very little, like, about... yeah. Well, and and I think a lot of the people argue about the Matt Shepard case. Oh, this is something um, that I wanted to bring up. So this this is what like nineteen ninety nine, um, two thousand one is the publication, but I think it debuted in like maybe ninety nine two thousand. Okay. Um, ten years later, or ten years after Matthew Shepard's death in two thousand eight, they published a second play. Oh. So they went back to Laramie. Um, and sort of, and they interviewed a lot of the same people, but they also interviewed Aaron McKinney in prison. Um, and it's, I, I would argue it's a much less artful. Interesting. It's, it's like an oral history. There's okay. nothing wrong with an oral history, but like, and then they, the way that they released it is they just kind of like published the PDF and like something like 20 theater companies all debuted it at the exact same time. Huh. Because at this point the play was, was like... It, I think it's called Laramie Project 10 Years Later okay. or Laramie Revisited or something like that. It's widely available online you can get, because it was immediately available. But um, there had been already like a lot of, according to them, revisionist history about okay. the Shepard issue. Um, it, it was published right before Barack Obama passed the uh, Matthew Shepard hate crimes bill. Okay. But right before. And... Um, uh, and, and it, yeah. So, what were we talking? We were talking about things. Oh, and one of the things, one of the things that they're pushing back on in that sequel is people believed that Shepard became um, like a saint or a martyr in a way that obliterated him as a person. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, the community that wanted hate crime yeah. legislation wanted to pass the, you know. Um, you know, like the, the 2008 play talks a lot about Wyoming trying to pass the um, Equal Marriage Act ha- sure. to, to legalize marriage in Wyoming. But they argue, people who, people who, detractors of a lot of these arguments argue that Matthew Shepard is being erased as a person. Yeah. He becomes like a symbol yeah. for this, this national movement, yep. which I think is really interesting. Um, I, I don't know if I agree. 
I don't I don't know if I agree with it, but I also like having watched that documentary that you told me about, like there's a ton of information in that that is completely not here that rounds him out as a character. I think right. I don't think they knew it. Like I don't think they knew a lot of stuff about his childhood or whatever. Like um he had he had, you know, a lot of bouts with depression and yeah. he was really interested in activism. Like there's just like a bunch of stuff, right? And then also, um, a lot of people think that he maybe had more interactions with McKinney and oh, Henderson. Yeah. Okay. Which I don't I mean, I don't know. Like I don't know if that like I don't know. I don't see I don't see any difference personally. Like like tell me everything about him and I'll still right. understand th- that like this is an investigation into like hate and what hate looks like in a town. But I think a lot I, I I feel the same way, but I think one of the real problems like there's no way to win when you're de- de- like the 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 thing about portrayal of like somebody like Matt Shepard is like there's no way to do it that's sati- that's going to satisfy. And so it's like right. which which problem are you going to embrace? Right. And which ones are you not going to walk into? And it's things like yeah, that's what happens. It's like a very one of the huge problems is that like the minute dead people mostly in like most most of our cultural narratives they become purely symbolic. Yeah. So the minute somebody dies in any kind of violent act it becomes they be- immediately become like a symbol of that genre of violence or whatever and not like a human being anymore but then if you try to make him a human being like whose version do you accept because like a lot most of the time what you'll see and this is what capote did with mostly uh, with the clutters is like you just turn them into like these very flat exemplary characters right where it's like oh you know and and that's how people talk about the dead it's not inauthentic because if you interview people about dead people what they say is, and I did this a lot, especially like when you're like when it's like they know that you're their son, they'll just right. be like, "Oh, they were just like so sweet, always had a smile on their face." And I'm like, "I spent 20 years with my mom. That's not who she was. <laughs> like, trust me, right. I was there. You know what I mean?" And so that's like the weird thing is like, how do you actually approach it? And I think you know, that's the thing is like you, you can't blame people for not really wanting to wade into that and for kind of taking the route, which I think is very common. Of like, well, maybe I don't try to portray them that much right. and let people kind of fill in whatever, but that does also kind of lend itself. Like, it's a double bind. There's no way out of it. But right. that, that does kind of lend itself to other people appropriating them and like reading things into your story right. that maybe you're not trying to do. And I, like, this is a kind of interesting to me in, in the sense that I feel like it's very subtle. Like, if it, if it mm-hmm. has a take on this, and I think it probably does, but it does, exa- and it's exactly what Capote said. He was the thing he was right about. He's like, it's just about selection. Mm-hmm. It's about what you put in and mm-hmm. what you don't, mm-hmm. because you're constantly guiding someone, but you're not doing it overtly. You're doing it by a, by selection and arrangement. And so, like for instance, the Baptist minister, right? Imagine, and I'm not saying it's a good or bad decision, but imagine the same play where they didn't include. Like you, this you is think, like a Baptist minister who they call and he's like, I don't want to talk to you. We don't agree with this. A member of our congregation is closely related to one of the accused. Yeah. Yeah. Says that horrible thing about, it's like one of the most horrible lines in a play where he says something about, I hope in his last moments, Matthew had a chance to reflect on his lifestyle. Yeah. I hope he repented. Yeah. While he, yeah. Right. And, uh, but like you, you figure, but then you like, if you're a practitioner, you know, okay, you spent, you go to Laramie six times, you do these interviews, you whittle down mm-hmm. a thousand pages of text at least to these 40. Oh, yeah. And so most of it got left out, but everything you did put in is like a signal that you think it's important. And so like, there's a fair amount of this Baptist minister. And I think that's how you read 
what it's trying to do. Because mm-hmm. what it's trying to do is not overt. It's not like a memoir or like a first-person personal essay where it's like, let me tell you all about the significance of what I'm trying to say. Right. It's implicit. Yeah. yeah. And in and, 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 and slightly more innocuous terms, there are people that I feel like they're trying to portray as generally likable. Yeah. But they say things like, I don't have a problem with gay people as long as they leave me alone. And then they kind of dig their own graves in the monologue, kind of just being like, you know, like, I just, I don't want, you know, and, and so then all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's, it's just that old argument, right? Like, that doesn't, I mean, I don't, I don't think really you, you hear it. I don't hear it the same way that I used to, but like of the 200 interviews and of the six hours of tape that they had with this one person, they want to show yeah. that this person who was working really hard for a, a kind of justice in Laramie is still at this place personally yeah. with how they define and so that's, I mean, that's the thing that I think, like, the, the the people that, like, attack, like, there was, like, there are there have been some books and things that attack this play, but, like, I think... What are they generally, can you, like, is it is it summarizable, what they say about it? Well, you know, like, the, the Laramie Project Revisited, the second play, talks about how Laramie has then, by, by 2008, Laramie proper and, like, other entities decided that this was not a hate crime, this was a drug crime. Oh. And the Tectonic Theater Project argues that, like, it's a lot easier to say that your community has a drug problem than a problem of deep-seated hateful bias. Like, it's it, – and we see this in a lot of different com- capacities and communities, right? right? Like, like th- that, that, is, that is easier for people. And, and then the, the thing – But also, like, isn't it – I mean, that binary – I feel like this – it's weird. I can't imagine teaching this now because I know how it goes, and it's like – there's a generational shift where it's like totally fine to just take kind of a revisionist perspective and to pretend as if these people were existing and living in a time that had the same social mores as the one we live in now. Yeah, it's hard, yeah. So it's like, I mean, I I guess it's like, you know, uh, I mean, I, I just, it, there's something about like the way, like can it be both? Like a community mm-hmm. can have both mm-hmm. a like a massive homophobia problem that comes out in violence and also a massive drug problem that contributes to that. Right. And the idea that it has to be one or the other and that like, the, of course the community is going to put forth one narrative, but I do think there's moments where like, this is really trying to put forth like, uh, like to make an argument about what caused it. And I'm, they're probably right. Cause I didn't do these interviews. I don't know. I, I know nothing about other yeah. than what I've read and seen about this case. But like, I do think there's a different kind of narrative being pushed forward. And I wonder about that because it's like, I can also see, I mean, I thought it was really funny that they mentioned near the end, they're talking about, they say twice that one of them says early in the play, somebody from Laramie says, Oh, now we're Waco. Now we're, um, Ruby Ridge, Ruby Ridge. Yeah. yeah. And toward the end, they're like, now everybody thinks, well, it's the old West. Okay. Mm -hmm. Corral. They actually say, okay. Yeah, I do. I thought about you. We read it. We like (laughs) punish the bad guys. And it's like, that's a very external narrative. Like mm-hmm. the idea that like, and, and I do think one of the reasons this got a lot of attention is because it's like, it's easy to say, oh, Wyoming, rural, mostly white, poor, rednecks, mm-hmm. cowboy hats, just, you know, yeah. gay, gay bashing, like redneck idiots. And like, I think that's a really fraught narrative. Yeah. Like, and if that's the truth, that's one thing. And it does seem like that was kind of the truth in many ways. But like, I also think the idea, like if, I guess what I'm trying to say is if I lived in Laramie and a New York theater company came through Mm -hmm. and like defined the story 
of what happened in that town for mm-hmm. 20 years to come, mm-hmm. I can understand be having some frustrations around that. Yeah, and, and you, you know, know they would it. David brought this up when I was teaching the play um, in January. You, you know that they wouldn't have gotten on the plane if it wasn't Laramie, yep. Wyoming. Exactly. Right? Like, and you know, too, that like... They wouldn't have gone two miles down, like, right. d- out of Manhattan yeah. to go to the same... Yeah, if the crime happened in Queens. Yeah. The the documentary that you watched a while ago that I watched this morning, like, 40 people died in similar ways yeah. by October of that year. But, and and also, you know when your nose twitches as a writer, when you're like, when you, when you're like, I, I, you know that feeling, you Labis described it at one yeah. point in the book, like, where you're like, oh, uh-oh. You know, and you did, and then you don't really know. It's like a sneeze. Yeah. All of a sudden, like if you're in mid sneeze. I bet you, like he was like Kaufman was like, and it's Laramie. You know, so he yeah. asks this question that he reports in the introduction: What can we do? But you probably can't deny the fact that a bunch of th- that premise that you described, a bunch of New York theater people yeah. descending on Laramie, Wyoming, doesn't make a storytelling nose twitch just in the friction right. of like asking that question, which. It's it's not, I don't know. I mean, it is well, in some ways a bad thing, but like, it's just like, that is a part of the art making. Exactly. Like, that was yeah, a part yeah. of it. It's not right? like, I'm not criticizing him at all. Because like, when you when you take something like this on, you you can't, there is no right. That's what I mean. Like the whole Capote thing, like spending years about like, first thinking Capote was like, just completely immoral and awful. And then being like, well, I mean, what was he supposed to do? What else could he right. have done? What have other people done teaching true crime? And it's like, there's no way out. There's no good way to do it. By making the art, you're compromising yourself. But like, and I do think he he does a lot of interesting stuff in this play, or they, I guess it's like a collectively. But, you know, to its great credit, I think it really acknowledges a lot of this stuff on the page where it's mm-hmm. like, it has, it includes those people saying, you know, oh, now we're Waco. You're all going to make us Waco. Right. We have to live under the... And it's like, it. they didn't have to include that. That's they right. They didn't have to put that stuff in. Or even that great moment. It's one of my favorite moments in the play where it says... I mean, I find it... I just find it like endlessly interesting that this is in there. And it's... Um, I think it's the sheriff talking to uh, one of the interviewers because uh, the whole theater company is doing the interviews. Mm-hmm. And he says... Uh, oh no, sorry. It's it's the Catholic priest. Oh, and Schmidt he says Roger Schmidt. You people are just out here on a search, though. I will do this. I will trust you people that if you write a play of this, that you pause, say it right, say it correct. I think you have a responsibility to do that. And it's like super interesting. Not that just that he said that, but the playwright put that in the play in a very mm-hmm. critical moment to just like like in neon, like look, like we're implicating, I'm actually implicating. Cause I think a lot of people do the fake implication where they just do like, they just gesture toward like self-implication where it's like, those have a sentence where it's like, I mean, I know I'm just coming from somewhere else, but like that's real implication. That's mm-hmm. a character saying like, you control my destiny. Like you control how thousands of people are going to think about me as a human being. Yeah. That makes me think too of like really early in the play that happens really late. And really early in the play, these two women are talking to them, and they're like, "What are you doing with these interviews?" Yeah. And the, and and then the 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 interlocutors, like the the person with the theater company, is like, "We're gonna turn it into a play." Yeah. And then she says, "Are you gonna do this play in Laramie?" And they say, "We hope so." And she said, "Oh, well, then I'm not gonna tell you that story." Yep. So then they're admitting that like they don't have access yeah. to all of the material, like they and that's really early. And then there's another part. Um, uh, the uh, the student who's like, so I'm saying these words to you, and then yeah. these words are going to be said by an actor yeah. in New York. That's fucked Super up. Super interesting. Yeah, right. Which I mean, I don't know. I mean, I could argue, Justin. I don't know. Like, 
in that still could be all three of those things could be like a little fake. Like they still could, they still can like, it still could be like, Oh look, I did, I did my due diligence and they right. still could like be pulling yeah, yeah. Like, fast ones on us. Okay. I was going to say too, like when you asked me what the students, how the students reacted, you know what the undergraduates really did when I taught this in January, they wanted to see the second play. Really? Yeah. In January huh. or, or I think I taught it in like February, like, I had to find the PDF and I had to give it to them. And then when we had like our second conversation over Zoom in the pandemic, like a bunch of them had read it. Wow. So I don't know if it's the true crime angle because this is the closest thing to true crime of the plays that I taught. Like some of the other ones definitely dealt with like crime and violence and things, but in a different capacity. But like they wanted, I don't know if they wanted to like read something that was closer to when they were alive or like if they wanted, I, I don't know if this play didn't, give them enough information to huh. understand what happened next, or I don't know if it just made them curious. It's certainly not, I don't think the second play, I don't think it's even a play. I think it's just like an oral history. Okay. Like the Is it because it's like not as, is it about the arrangement? It's just not, because this is like, I mean, this, mm-hmm. these, the, the problem trying to teach something like this, which is why one of the things I'm interested about is like, when you do this, it's done so well, the, how you know it's done so well, the arrangement is that you don't realize how well it's done. It's invisible. It yeah. just seems like it makes sense and has a progression. But like, if you've ever tried to do something like this, you realize how fucking hard that is Yeah, to make it make it, like what you're talking about where you start with like, what was it? Improvised? Devised. Devised. Sorry. Yeah. And like, you have to then, I think people always assume, and it's like a very lyric sensibility. It's very similar, like to. I mean, it's not a, an essay. I don't think I agree, but like it, the lyric thing is similar to the way the way it works in this, where it's like an assembly of sources, original sources. Because some of it is not interview based too, and it's sneaky. You don't notice it, but mm-hmm. like the one of the killers, his interview is a transcript of the from the police report. Yeah, from the actual. It's not. They didn't do that interview. I guess they interviewed McKinney later, but for yes. the second one, but not for this. Yeah. But anyway, it's like. I just think about like people think that's easy because it's like, oh, you don't have to make it up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You didn't have to make anything up. You just like put all this true stuff in order and it was a play. And it's like, it's so fucking hard yeah. to arrange real things to not have the freedom to make shit. And I'm not saying they don't make anything up because of course, like everybody always makes stuff up, but like to not actually be able to invent scenes and moments and people and all that is mm-hmm. so much, in a lot of ways, so much harder. Because you have to make it coherent out of what you have. You have so many like limitations. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like really, I mean, I think I I don't know anything about how it would look on stage, but to read it, it really makes, it seems good to me. And I think that's the moment work. Like as as much as we sort of like, I rolled my eyes at that manifesto that he said of what a moment is. I think that's what's missing in the sequel. He, he talks in some, I don't know exactly where I read this, but he talks about moment work a little bit more in depth. And what they're doing is, is somewhat essayistic. Like they're looking it for the like core clear. value inside. They find a couple hot transcripts. Maybe they're from two people who weren't even in the same room, yeah. or maybe they're okay. like, they want to fuse the two things together, but then they improvise and they do a bunch of stuff to figure out like why this matters to them yeah. as audience. Because they're, when the theater company came back to the theater to work on this material, they were audiences to the text. Even if they had gotten the interviews themselves, like they were, they stood audience before the transcripts of this town. And so then they asked themselves these questions, like what's at the core of my curiosity? And then they build the moments when they begin, when they end, like none of them are necessarily shaped with that kind of traditional arc. So I think, I think that kind of work 
that's the kind of thing that I try to do in workshops sometimes with people. Like, what's at the core? Not what's yeah. this essay about? Jesus Christ, please yeah. stop telling me what your essay's about because you don't know, right? Like, yeah. I never know. But like, what's what's the thing that like, if I asked you to write this a million different ways, like would never change? Like, I think that's kind of essayistic. That, that That's yeah. an es- essayistic kind of like inquiry. And I think that's the the reason why the second one feels more like an like when they do like the oral history of we built this city on rock yeah. and roll like BuzzFeed or whatever. It feels a little more like that. Like okay, okay, this is a block of text. This is a block of text. Yeah, you know, this is an interview for, and we just put different headings. Like oh, yeah. this is about guitars, and this is about whatever. But this is like I don't. And I'm sorry if you're nobody's listening from the Tectonic Theater Project. They're probably like we worked so hard, but. Like this, I think when you talk to students about structure, you can actually ask them, like, you can take you can take two moments, right? Because each moment is like two or three pages long. And you can ask them to reverse engineer, like, what was so important about right. this? Like, one of the yeah. things that the students always notice is that they don't say Matthew Shepard's name until, like, 15% of the play is over. Okay. Like, and then we read that out loud, and they realize that that's like, 15 minutes where people are just talking about like they mention, you know, the incident with the boy, I think they say, but they don't say his name for so long. And it's like, well, that's, that's so deliberate, right? Like that's, that's like you, like you were talking about, like that's a refusal to portray the person whose picture is on CNN every five minutes. Like that's like a, this company wants to talk to these people that are still alive, just like you're still alive that are going to be grappling with this shit, right. just like you're going to be grappling with this shit. And that's, that's the other thing. I'm sorry to monologue, but like, like another big detraction to this play is that it like pigeonholed Laramie as some kind of like, that's the thing that they really felt about the play in the second play that they feel, they felt very hurt by the way that they were portrayed some people. But when I read this play, I was like, Oh, this is Gwinnett County, Georgia. Yeah. You know what I mean? Also towns also feel that always feel that way. Right. Everything that's ever been written about a town, the town got pissed off about. Right, right. Like I a, mean, Holcomb, it was the same deal. It was it Friday just, Night yeah. Lights, we're Odessa, right? Yeah, like, they yeah. were, like that beautiful they were really, book, yeah. they were so mad. But like, I also was like, oh, I thought you were making this because like Reggie Flutie lives in Gwinnett County, Georgia. Right. And, you know, like the, the, the bartender who has watched too much Perry Mason is like totally yeah. a bartender in Pittsburgh. Like, it just seemed so interested in like, this town, this is a stand-in town for a bunch of towns that need to rethink, like, hate crime legislation. Well, that's like, and that's the thing, right? So I think that's true, but there are things it does that I admire that I thought were, like, at least gestures toward trying not to do that. Like, one of the reasons I like this a lot is because, and it is a little bit essayistic, because it's like, there are some threads that don't really fit, but are there, I think, to give you some... to make you think about these kinds of things. So one of them is like, they include, or it's, and one of them is really early. Like people are worried about how the town's going to be, their town's going to be portrayed throughout this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're going to make us wake up. There's like three or four comments like that. Mm-hmm. And those are included, I think, to acknowledge that, to acknowledge the situation. Or like even that thread that is really interesting to me, but doesn't, it only happens on a few pages, but they're talking about the idea that like money was a big factor that these guys had to pay for their picture in coins, that these guys right. robbed people, that these guys were like poor. They lived right. in trailers. They were like, and he had a lot of money and they saw a target. Mm-hmm. And I'm not like, I, I, obviously it's like, cause I think it's like their girl, it's the killer's girlfriends or something. And so obviously they have an agenda to like say it was this and not that. Mm-hmm. But like, 
to include that stuff is to acknowledge that there's a lot of forces at play here. Mm-hmm. Even if we're going to foreground in this, because it, like the piece of art kind of has to, we're going to foreground mostly like one particular issue, which honestly, it seems like from everything I have seen about it, again, don't know anything, was the big issue. Homophobia, was, it was a hate crime. But yeah. like, they're also acknowledging there are other factors at play in this town. And like everything that's at play in this town is at play at this in this crime. Right. Like they talk about how there's no jobs. Yeah. But all of the people in the university feel like there's a million jobs yep. because the university is booming. But yeah. if you don't work at the university, you're working for minimum wage or not. And including all the news people and like not very flatteringly, I think is a really is a is a way to like include a critique of mm-hmm. people who just parachute in to tell a story and leave. And mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways the theater company is doing a similar thing. Mm -hmm. So they're implicating themselves too. So I find that's one of, those are some of the moments that make me really like it and feel like it's like sophisticated in a way that it's like willing to, willing to be like really complicated and complicate Mm -hmm. itself like purposefully on the page, even though that's going to like leave it open to misinterpretation or like alienating listeners Mm -hmm. or like, or uh, viewers, you know. Do you think David, like, this is too big of a question to ask you and I know you're not like, David and I, I think, like I auditioned for this play three times. I probably saw this play a bunch. Okay, but I think have we you worked, seen it, dude? I haven't seen it. I haven't read it actually. I think we worked in very different theater worlds. Like okay. we would work together occasionally, but like I was definitely more like, you know, the kind of people who would do this play or would do like a scripted play. Like David was more likely to do kind of a, a theater company, like nurturing a theater project from like the beginning forward, a kind okay. of more like indie DIY thing. But like just in terms of like this issue, right? So like there was a really interesting article that came out in Harper's in 1999 by Joanne Wipajewski called about this? A Boy's Life about, you know, maybe it's about mass toxic masculinity. I don't think she oh. used that term, but like it's really, I remember it being, I read it in class with Dave Madden that we were talking about okay. a couple of issues ago, episodes ago. So you have a journalism article. There's the documentary that you and Bonnie watched that I watched this morning. Oh yeah, right, like a, a sort of interview portrait. I'll right, put that in the show links. There's n- also this is this PDF is so readily available. Uh, anybody that wants to okay. read the one thing I'll say: don't watch the HBO Christina Ricci thing. The tech with uh, Pacey from Dawson's Creek plays the bartender Matt McGowan. Don't watch oh. that. <laughs> Who's Christina Ricci? She's uh, uh, Romaine, okay. the, the one who comes up with the angels yeah, okay. to block Fred Phelps. But like, so you should totally read the um, read read the play. But um, so we have all these different like art art coverages of this issue. Um, it, from where you're sitting, like, what do you think theater can do that a documentary or a well researched Harper's article? Or um, like a book, you know, can't do like, like what do you? Think? Oh, you're asking me. Yeah, like I, I wonder, like you just you know a lot more, or you you seem to sort of understand the unique properties of theater probably better than anybody else sitting in front of a microphone right now, and so I, I feel like I'm missing something about like why this play, why this issue has a particular elasticity or energy in dramatic form. You think it has more so than if it was an article? I I would argue that like the the documentary and the article and the play are basically doing the same work in that they go out and interview people to try to understand what yeah. happened in one way or another. Right, it's like just from slightly different positions. Yeah. Multiple voices. Um, you have like a, a, a 
uh, everybody sort of asserts themselves as a narrator, but one thing appears in a periodical, one thing appears as a retrospective 13 years later. And then you have this play that um, becomes licensable and then becomes, then gets performed all over the world. Is there a book? Is there like a, is Mm -hmm. there like a true crime book about this case? Several, yeah. Okay. And I some, would imagine there must yeah, be. Yeah, and I'm not some of them are kind of super revisionist. Okay. Like, and really say that, that like, they, they posit some really, like, they're kind of, and they're hard to, you know, some some of those are dismissed and some of them aren't. Yeah. Okay. But there are, like, yeah. Sorry, but you were asking, Dave. But yeah, like, is there is there something that, like, the art of devised theater or performance can do that? I mean, I think in some ways you're answering the question just by saying that, uh, I mean, so a lot of the, Theories that it sounds like Moise Kaufman is proposing are really like, like towards a poor theater, like Rutowski's book mm-hmm. in the sixties. That's the idea that you can't compete with film, so you need to double down on the things that only theater does. So can you, you say the name of that book again? What was that? Can you say the name of that book again? Uh, it's uh, towards a poor theater. Okay, and it's a and it's about not having a set and not worrying about costumes and not having light changes, all of that kind of stuff. Rutowski's actual focus was very different than than well not very different but but different that um than a lot of what i'm hearing in terms of the laramie project but but still like i think you know he's he had that kind of influence but what you're talking about are all of these companies all over the world people doing this play i mean that's one very basic thing that it can do that you know that groups get together they they read they work they you know, in a smaller town, if you have a community theater and you're looking for something that doesn't have expensive production values and you want to engage in a social issue, I mean, then you've got a small group of engaged people inside that town working on this project, you know, and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, inviting their friends into see it or something like that. You can imagine if it was happening here that it would have like a, a resonance or something you right. know, in a town like this. So right. I think that that's a very basic thing that... that or like theater does in terms of it makes people roll their sleeves up and and work on the idea and not just you know read it or or, or chat it out you know um, and it has to be viewed in a community capacity so like it doesn't matter what's happening when the play ends you're still st- sitting with hopefully a bunch of people you know hopefully it's a full house but like so the lights come up you've sat in real time while people have grappled with these issues and then you're around other people and then you can have a talk back or you can do whatever you want. Like you can program it or you can just like, yeah, you can bring school groups to it and you can try to have, right. you know, like or you as just much outreach as possible. You yeah. know? Um, I mean, I think that in the theater, the danger is you do something that's socially like engaged and it runs the risk of only reaching the same demographic Right. Of like yeah. rich white people who then feel like they have done something about the homeless problem because they saw a play about yep. homeless people, you know, and like <laughs> that is like at its worst, like theater it disengages people, you know, I think it, it creates the illusion that they're, you're accomplishing something because you saw a piece of theater about right. that thing. Also um, a problem for literary nonfiction. Yeah, we were talking about yeah, that last episode, problem. I think. Yeah, for and I mean, like, I think that challenge is like the one you, you sort of need to figure out ways to overcome. But I mean, if you've got something that actually... Uh, you know, that can be done inexpensively and that can be done in small communities and that you know, you can bring people into and try to, and it sounds mm-hmm. like it's thematizing a lot of these issues. So 
hopefully the people that are making the play in other communities are aware of those problems and are trying to mm-hmm. find ways around it. But, you know, it's so far away from theater that, that I, I work on. So it's yeah. kind of hard for me to, to, there's like this really interesting tradition of using theater to empower whether or not successfully or not, like non-typical theater goers, right? Like agitprop theater in Russia, which, you know, put trained theater performers and acrobats on trains and drove them through the continent to uh, do theater in warehouses that told them why, like, you know, communist ideals would hopefully help them. Uh, Or like in um, the Depression, there's the WPA. They put out this thing called the Federal Theater Project, which was run by this really interesting woman. And they hired out-of-work journalists, out-of-work playwrights, out-of-work actors to – it's called the Living Newspaper Project. And they just basically like made theater out of pretty intense reporting that they then performed or there's Teatro de los Campesinos in California, which started in like with the poor Campesinos is like a, like a poor, right? Yeah. Farmer. Yeah. It was in back of a truck. It started with Cesar Cesar Chavez and the United Workers Project. It was theater company, LA theater company just hopped on the back of a truck and started working with people in these migrant communities. And then in very Brechtian ways, like Brecht really famous, like, you don't put a doctor in a doctor's uniform. You just put a sign on him that says doctor because okay. that's all you need. Right. So they would do that and it would say like El Diablo and it would be like, you know, okay. like yeah. whatever. Like, But they, I mean, they did a lot of other things. Like they toured the world. They worked with Peter Brook. They made a really interesting play about the Zoot Suit Riot, which was like a real yeah. thing and not just like a stupid song by the Cherry Pop yeah. and Daddies, by the way. Thank you, 90s, for not teaching me that. But like they would perform the stories of these folks that were working in these gigantic uh migrant farm worker communities just for them because they would just like telegraph ba- or par- parrot back their stories and elevate them, even though it was only on like a flatbed truck. So like there, there is a long international, tra- and then there's also theater of the oppressed, which is this whole other thing from the sixties. But like, and I mean, that's part of the other answer, which is like, you know, I think Pete Seeger actually said the reason why my, the, because of the Federalist theater project, this country raised a generation of socialists. Like it was like mm-hmm. all of the people of his age, there was this very subversive teaching style that was really popular. Um, that was bringing in a lot of ideas that I think if like, if it wasn't coming in through the theater, uh, it wouldn't, it would have been more obvious that like the administration wanted to crack down on it, you yeah. know, but it was mm-hmm. like actually um, kind of indoctrinating young people into a, a kind of a non-capitalist way of, yeah. of thinking about the world that they lived in. And it did have an effect, you know, on like a, on a large generation of people that kind of fuel what became like the 60s counterculture movement. And it sort of starts earlier there. But like, this, yeah, this is really jogging my memory, too, about my students. So we read this play. We read the Oscar Wilde play. We read the play, a play about Rachel Corey, who was an activist who got uh, who, activist in Gaza, who got run over by an Israeli Defense Forces tank. That play was written by Alan Rickman, by the way, wow. a.k.a. Severus Snape. OK, well, it was written by her. It was like her journals and, and emails and letters and shit, but they turned it into a one person show. And we read a, a play about suicide called every brilliant thing. That's kind of this like interactive play. Um, we read a play by one of David's teachers at UT about money called how much is enough. That's huh. also kind of interactive. But one of the things we did this, Sorry, kind this of, is a stupid question, but maybe mm-hmm. other people who are listening to like, 
I mean, I get the idea of interactivity, but what does that actually practically mean in a place that, like, you're engaging the audience in yeah, different like ways? They help decide. They're like voting on stuff? Well, sometimes. So, yeah. Like, like, choose your own adventure? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, there, I can, there are a couple of. You say interactive? Yeah. 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 So, um, Every Brilliant Thing is a play that they built around a comedian where it's this, like, set story of about a, a guy who grew up with a mom, a severely depressed mom who ended up taking her own life. Okay. But as he tells the story, um, there's this like premise where he's writing down this list of a thousand brilliant things that were actually generated by 10 years of trying to perform this play and asking for the, so they're under the chairs of the audience. And so he'll say the number like 999 and an audience member will read the thing out loud, but also the play is structured so that he can pull someone out of the audience and have them play different members of his story. Okay. But it's just really, it's like a magician. Like it's just okay. really well done so that they will give the answers that they need. That's on HBO if you want to like see Point it. Break Live. It's ever, like Point Break Live. You ever heard about that? But there's no. like a lot more. I mean, I think. No, but like, well, like I was going to say like um, what the constitution means to me, okay. which is uh, on Amazon right now, I just had a Broadway thing, which I, I would like to talk about more later if we have time. But like, the entire ending of that play is decided by the audience. They bring in a young person to decide whether or not they should abolish the U.S. Constitution, and they give these really intense debates. But there's also like, I mean, yeah, there's more. So what are some other examples of interaction? I was just going to say, I mean, I think one of the, the challenges with theater is that like some of the most like seminal pieces, they don't exist in a way that you can teach because they can't, there aren't, aren't on paper. So you're- no. So, because they happened in the room and they really did, they were fully involved mm-hmm. in like just engaging the audience to to do things or yeah. to explore um, things or to go and see separate parts of of a play that was happening sort of all around them, you know, and there's right. no way to put right. that into a book and to make something out of it, you know, or you have like, you know, Griselda Gambaro has got this play called, it's like you notes know, for foreigners or something like that, but it's, you know, she's uh, she had to smuggle it out of Chile and it's, it it's basically a, dec, a you know instructions on how to create a warehouse torture uh, uh like chamber to kind of explain what was happening in the shadow government there and then people built these like installations where you could you stumble into these rooms and inside mm-hmm. of these rooms she'd sort of sketched out these scenarios where people are being interrogated and and that experience is one that you're you're not going to get off of what reading that book is. Right. It's yeah. just kind of like yeah, this is the idea of a recipe yeah. of of what I would like to explain about living in this country right now. So I feel like in that way, some of the the theater. I mean, I think you know Robert Wilson blew up a mountain in Iran at one point. You know, like <laughs> and that was you know it's like we could right. see stills not, of it. I mean, I guess it is. That's like the ultimate nonfiction theater. I guess if you if you <laughs> like, change the landscape. Yeah, I was I mean, about to say like, that it wasn't was nonfiction that theater. Like you know, Grotowski's got this play in the early '60s where it's it's pieces of uh like the Iliad and and the Bible happening this is 60 miles away from Auschwitz and it's happening in like 1962 while the company builds a concentration camp around the audience like just mm-hmm. constructs it while wow. they're in the space and it, it's sort of the thing that gave him the international like reputation that that launched him but it's like you can't mm-hmm. obviously you can't reproduce it because you'll never have the audience again and the proximity of, of historically and like you know in terms of just literal distance to this tragedy, 
but then to actually kind of put people into that space when it really wasn't something that was created before, you know, it's like, you can't imagine it except, you know, it's purely in theory. That's, that, that's kind of like connects to like what I was thinking about. Another thing that the student said was like, we can't talk about the ways in which the theater is useful. And they were so tortured because it was pandemic class, but like there is no practice of going to the theater anymore. But some of the questions that they said I was asking presupposed that it was part of a diet where you would go to these spaces yeah, and you would have these experiences, these collective experiences, and you would be confronted in these ways. And it's not just like, I mean, it, it is a class thing, right? Like theater is really expensive and it has like no, ter- no, no dividend. And it's completely urban. And it, yeah. And it, well, yeah, unless you're doing something on the back of a flatbed yeah. truck, but that doesn't count as theater for like 90% of the population, right? Not theater, but like, even that like doesn't exist anymore except for in church. Like the only thing that's close yeah. is going to, but that's what you do, right? You well, go to church and you sit with people and you're confronted with ideas and then you have an experience together. Like I think that's, I didn't go to church that much, but I think that's what you're supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. But if we had a practice where you would go like every three months and sit with people and then there would be this thing devised to make you have reactions in real time, that could be a part of your philosophical spiritual diet, right? And I think a lot of these plays are really interested in mm-hmm. in creating those experiences. Like the Laramie Project can create one meal of that spiritual diet in almost any community. You don't, I mean, it helps to be good. You don't even have to be good to put mm-hmm. this play on, you know? Like right. all the language is limited yeah. in a good way. You don't need... I mean, really what makes a play bad, I think, is bad tech because actors are always stupid. But, like, you don't you don't even need good tech for this. Like, you just need je- jeans and T-shirts and literacy, sort of. Like, that's beautiful, right? Like, that's a beautiful way to, like... It, I mean, it's like religion, right? Like, like, people do the same midnight mass on Christmas Eve all over the country, right. and it's... It's just what it's what you do in order to be with people on this day that you're supposed to make important. This makes me like want, want to really take you out to Tombstone because I like increasingly the like the more I like the longer I live, the more I'm like, oh right, probably a lot of my like mentality was shaped by the fact that I lived in a town where every day, five or six times, a bunch of grown ass men reenacted a gunfight right. that right. had happened. Like very poorly, like poorly reenacted a gunfight, and that was wildly historically inaccurate. And they shot somebody, right? Didn't somebody get shot in the town? Yeah, like, and then yeah, like and then they. I wasn't living there then, but it was like seven or eight years ago. I was living in Albuquerque, and one of the guys just left real bullets in his gun geez, and just geez, fired geez. five shots in downtown. To, he hit one guy in the leg, and then like a bunch of them buried in like lamp and shit. Oh, so like the moment when that's that's, that's right. the moment that fascinates me so much because it's the moment when the reenactment became historically accurate in one very important <laughs> way. And like it's like yeah. the so people you, watching had no fucking idea. You lived this, in this a nonfiction get, theater town yeah, in a of, weird way. Yeah. You lived in a town with no high school theater, but yeah. there was theater in the streets, and it was nonfiction. And some of them had had built actual stage, like actual fake. There, there's an, like an actual fake old west town set down the road, down mm-hmm. at like South Tombstone, where people do reenactments. 
this is getting me to a question though that I have about something that you you said earlier. So like it 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 does it's glaringly obvious that there's something kind of uncomfortable about a Manhattan theater company going to a place like Laramie, Wyoming, and that feels like uncomfortable. But like I saw the Wicker Man recently, like the original Wicker Man. Uh, have you seen that? Uh-uh. Fucked up. And uh, you know, and then thinking about like you're talking about Tombstone or thinking about like when we watched uh, Last Picture Show a few weeks ago. Yeah. We obviously have a fascination with the idea of a community having its own personality mm-hmm. and culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some ways, like Annie Devere Smith is doing the very opposite thing. Like she's saying in these inner, like, like not even inner, but in these like large metropolitan cities, you have so many different groups of people that there is no, there's, uh, there's nothing but like cross talk. And right. Like, Anna Devere Smith does like these big one woman shows where she embodies you know, all of South Central Los Angeles there's after just, the Rodney oh, King riots wow, or okay. Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Yeah, there's a million, it's so yeah. many different voices coming at you and different perspectives and something like that. But you're doing the opposite thing when you go to this little Scottish hamlet in Wicker Manor, when you go into, you know, this town and for last picture show based on like Archer, Texas or whatever. And, yeah. and you go to Laramie, you're kind of looking for, for, and I think when we were in Iowa, we heard this all the time that there were people from these small towns in Iowa that, really were proud that their town had a culture and had a personality, like a way of being itself, you know? And then I wonder, like, if you were here and something terrible happened in Corvallis and you're writing about it as a nonfiction writer, like, clearly you could undermine the notion that there's a prevailing culture in Corvallis. I mean, there's Satanists here, you know, and there's like, you know, there's all sorts of whatever weird pockets of people and you could find all those people and sort of dismantle that notion. But we all know that there is a prevailing culture in Corvallis. And if something, you know, like was a glaring reflection of that, you know, what is your obligation? Because you do kind of want to say, well, this is the culture that we've allowed to define this place. And it does have things that, you know, in terms of, like the uncomfortable relationship between liberal politics and wealth that resonate in really in weird ways that you'd be like, well, this is one of the problems of that, you know? So you'd come in here and you'd sort of want to highlight it, I think. Right. I mean, that seems like the the project with like, Mm. like going to Laramie, like you're, you're, you're searching for what is the prevailing culture that would make someone who was not of it. Yeah be mm-hmm. you know potentially such a misfit that they would become a a a, a you know a target well and and yeah. then you're trying to sort of like right. capture that and that bit. seems so much more appropriate to 1998 than it does to now like the idea of a community pre internet yeah like that's one of the reasons why people talk about Laramie and the Laramie project because of how accessible the story became because of the media descent, which, you know, was rarer back then, you know, like, and they were shocked, right? Like, but you don't feel like we have like, I mean, even we, we exist post internet here. And I do think, I think that there is like, you know, we, we don't necessarily want to participate in it hundred percent, but I think there is like a, a Corvallis culture, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, there is something that, has come into existence and it is, you know, it's got a historical reason for why it is that way. And we, we know that, you know, and then we watch like 
the homeless debate happen here and it's like oh wow this right. is a yeah. major this is really highlighting a lot of the things that are uncomfortable about this right. community like is that we don't know how to talk about this yeah. and deal with this right. issue it's clearly a a problem that is like you know at some point needs to be addressed or it's just going to become like you know d- disastrous you know and right. it, it, or isn't it already i mean like i think it helps like you're saying to to center it around an issue. Like yeah. the first time I taught the grad version of this class, the students wanted to interview everybody in Corvallis about that Catherine Schultz earthquake article oh, okay. and about the earthquake panic and the ways in which this community that was just put on blast yeah, right. as being like, I think toast was yeah, the quote, everything right? West of I-5. That was like, by the way, do you remember? That was like the month that we we both signed. Yeah, it was the month I moved here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like, um, I'd never been physically nauseated yeah. by an article but it's so great to sign at least the week that an article comes out that says every, yeah. But um, yeah, I think like- For you, does that make sense? Well, the minute you said the 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 like homelessness issue, it's like, yes. Right. Because when people come back and react to this question here, I immediately say, well, we're different from Eugene, which is 45 minutes south of us, and Salem, which is 45 minutes north of us. And whatever made this town this town- different from those two places is so available in that conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think it really does help like the earthquake thing. Like I think it really helps to sort of like pick one thing and then ask the community, you know, which is, which is a really reductive way to look at a murder. Right. Right. But, um, but it only happens. Yeah. Go ahead. It only happens with like, the thing is that like the homelessness crisis is interesting because, the national media does not give a shit right. because it's not happening in New York. Right. The whole West Coast, it's probably one of the major, yeah. like, few major pressing major immediate yeah. social issues. The whole West Coast and lots of like even the inland West, mm. but because it's not happening to nearly the same degree because there aren't shanty towns on highway off ramps on I-95 everywhere, nobody fucking cares. Right. And like, I, I do think like homelessness or like, you know, like, or like the, even the earthquake, it's like a regional issue. And like when you have, when it's like, oh, hate crime against a young gay man in Laramie, Wyoming, and it's like, then everybody descends, mm-hmm. who can, like, it, it's about power. Who controls that narrative? Mm-hmm. It's nobody in Laramie. It's not Matthew Shepard's family. Mm-mm. It's not, it is entirely those. And, and that's one of the things I really admire about this. And I feel like, I don't know that there's, a, there's an okay approach to what you're talking about, but like, I do admire a lot of what this does because it includes the reporters. It's critiquing everyone. Mm-hmm. It's critiquing the people making this play. Mm-hmm. It's critiquing, because you're right. You, you can, and also like the whole authenticity thing, you can never ask people who live inside a city what a city is, mm-hmm. what a city stands for because they're blind to it. But you also can't parachute in for like two weeks and be like, I understand the fundamental essence of this place. Um, and so like, I think, this does like a pretty interesting two years interview a hell of a lot of people, mm-hmm. a hell of a lot. And then like include a lot, like it does include kind of a broad range. It, it does a pretty, I think a pretty damn good job of what is almost an impossible job. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. And then you think about like, I mean, they showed up, well, the media showed up, 72 hours afterwards. Yeah, we're probably gone by the time they showed up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, until the, tri- yeah, until oh, the right, trial until started. The trial, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, you're totally sure. right. And then, but they showed up like, I think six weeks after the murder, five weeks after he died. Wow. And um, 
and 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 I rem- and yeah, because the woman who the woman who plays the theater professor, the theater professor who other people play in in the play says, you know, everybody was trying to process this, and then the media showed up. Yeah. Like, and then she was like, I really want, I didn't want to talk to you guys, but now I want to, I want the kids, the, the theater students to talk to you because they have not been processing it all. Yeah. Which is like, that, that's really interesting to me too. And then like, to bring it back to like what you said at the very beginning, that's a noble project, but of course the project doesn't stop with their interviewing. Right, yeah, yeah. Right, True. 20 years later, yeah. there are kids who were born in, you know, 2004 who were telling me that they they did the 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 Oregon forensics competition they did Reggie Flutie's monologue right so somebody's saying Reggie Flutie's name you know like that's what happened with the project like they had all these diligent ideas and or whatever and they had these representational boundaries but also this is what Matthew Shepard is to a lot of people yeah right right this is what the entire this is what maybe not what laramie is although i don't know what else has come out of laramie anyway in some ways like the archival nature of it is what's problematic is that the idea that that it it isn't just an action you know that was performed that it's like got this life right decades later and it's always going to represent that because there's like ut where I went to, to grad school, there was a section of the theater com- of the theater department called PPP, which was performance as public practice. Okay. And the, in some cases, like you would go and you'd like groups of people would interview, create monologues. And then the first thing that you had to do was sort of perform back to the community, what you saw. And then you see that basic like formula, like corporatized, where businesses have hired yeah. theater companies, essentially like you know, uh, modeled theater companies to come into their workplace and do this yep. to sort of like let people see like this is how you guys l- interact. This is how this looks. Yeah, yeah. and I then you're watching. You know, you're watching like oh that that is uncomfortable. Like you know, if I'm if I'm a manager here and I see what this dynamic is. You know, perhaps I could say like, uh, uh, like that's not something I want to repeat, or I, I, I feel comfortable watching when I see it in that right. context. Really? Like, in theory, that that works. You know, that it has this, you know, like social function that could be useful. So it's like this could happen for a community by a group of players who would then right. like learn something through this process. And then you know what would be weird would be that you're what you, you know you weren't you know you learned it. But the uneducated you is the one that like exists thirty years from now that people are still doing monologues. Right. Of, yeah, right, like, right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Rather yeah. than if you kept That's it in the of, community. Yeah, that right. makes me think of something else that you said once, like, <laughs> like in terms of like the perils of social theater. Like somebody that we knew or somebody that we we read about a theater company that was like asking for a grant for like $75,000 so they could put on a play about like the free and reduced lunch program. And it was like, uh, maybe just give $75,000 yeah, to buy some people some lunch. Like, <laughs> buy a like, lot of lunches. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't think that like, like, and it was like a theater company with like chairs and a set and like yeah. a dramaturg and shit. It's not, it's not like this thing that David's talking about. But that frankly is the thing about this kind of stuff that always, like, I think that's probably why I have never read the Laramie project, which sounds just like, it's been interesting to listen to you talk about it. And it, and, and it sounds, <laughs> I didn't like know it, you'd never read it. No, but like, it's like theater got, there are people that, really work to turn it into a utility and I hate that. So it's like, 
And then it happens because everybody is searching for funds and in a nonprofit theater, everyone needs those funds through grants. And so then everyone tries to argue how they're saving the world, helping people, yeah. doing whatever, right. educating, how it's going to be right. use, useful to schools. And that's always and nonfiction. All theater. of this kind of stuff. So it's like all of the money goes there and then people chase that thing. And so then you're working with a company and they're like, yeah, I like your idea. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like how could we... I don't know, maybe we could tweak it a little bit so that it could become something that could also be useful to elementary school students. And you're like, that's not like happening. This is a play about people sticking their hands down garbage. Yeah, that's not happening in my world. Like, but that's like the, the, that's where the, yeah. the, the energy flows. So I feel like there's a bunch of people that really want to know like, what's the, this theater doing? And it's like, yeah, you know, this theater doesn't, it, it only now needs to, pretend to be doing something you know all the time in order to get paid attention to or to get any kind of funding but it's like yeah you know i mean that's totally happening in academia too you know like i need to we need to fund this initiative in order for me to still be able to teach Chekhov. yeah right like it's like all i really want to do is teach Chekhov because he's great and also hot and also tall don't get me started i hate Chekhov. Really? I have like a burning hatred of it's. Yeah, it's a long story. Have you story. read his plays? Uh, I think I've read one. It's mostly based on having gotten a fiction MFA mm. in the 2000s <laughs> and just would ram Chekhov down your throat endlessly uh. and say Chekhov was like, it was like the one I wrote a whole, I did like a, an actual, at the time when I was finishing up grad school, I counted. And for like all of short fiction before 1960, uh-huh. I had been given like, five authors total oh God. to read. And it was like- And they're all Russian. Like 18 of them were Chekhov stories. <laughs> 18 stories, like 18 Chekhov stories. And then it was like one like Tolstoy, one like, and it was, I don't remember, but it was like, you know, uh, all white dudes, all like, and it's just Chekhov this, Chekhov that. We were that. just talking about this because it's like the idea of him being known as a fiction writer is so it's weird so to me. So funny to yeah. us. He's got four plays. I mean, he's got more than four plays, but th- there are four- principal plays that like rewrote the theater. It's like, they're so oh. important and you're yeah. just like, uh, like, and then it, people are still just trying to kind of crack yeah. what the magic of them is and how, I mean, to make them is so hard and to understand them is just like, you could spend, yeah. like, they're like Andre Rubik's Gregory cubes. spent like a year with, with his uncle Vanya. Like they yeah. just rehearsed it for a solid year. And I think they like felt like you could just keep yeah. living wow. in this thing and so they the don't plays okay i don't make the co- co- connection between yeah, his short crazy. stories and his plays the way that i do with some people that write yeah. both you know like it, i don't i understand why if, if if only you had it i'm always like all right she's got a little dog you know but yeah. like but the plays <laughs> are funny and sexy and also they're like trampolines like unlike this where you're like really beholden i think to these people as people like Vanya doesn't exist, right? Like, right. so like you can, like, I remember Jay Oberski, our friend did a, a three sisters that had a rope swing in it. And and there's this really famous scene where these two people, this woman is trying to convince her husband to do something. And it's kind of boring and vi- like kind of Victorian in nature, but she, in Jay's play, just gets on top of him and fucks him while she asks to do it. Right. <laughs> like, and there's lots of skirts involved. So of course it's all very uh, concealed. But it's like, yeah, that's a negotiation too. You know, it's like Shakespeare in that way. Yeah. Like, like anyway. Yeah, I wanted to ask you though before. Oh, so go ahead, honey. Oh, no, I love him. 
I'm trying to like wrap it up. So yeah, it's hot in here. We should. Uh, I feel bad. We're all melting in my living room. I don't. Have, I don't we can't turn on the window AC because it's too loud. This well, drink was strong, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's I like making it us really good. Yeah. Yeah. I but I have a. One. I do have like a. Th- Three question lightning round, maybe for both of you. Okay. But um, oh my god, is this the last lightning round of the season? It is. It, I believe it is. Um, wow. Should it's we try all to make theater it- themed? Ooh. So okay. maybe maybe you can both answer them. I'm guessing if you want to. I I wanted the first one. I want you to do the first one, honey. Favorite role you've ever played? Thersites, I think, in uh, Troilus and Cressida. Why? Why? Yeah. Great. I don't know any part like that. And I mean, I love Shakespeare, but like in Shakespeare, he's a clown, but he's like the anti-clown. Okay. Um, and it's fantastic. It's just really, it's like speaking truth to power, but the power in this case is like Achilles and Ajax, and he's getting the crap kicked out of him the whole time. So it was just like a, I don't know, it's a really fun, very physically interesting character to play. Where what? Where the play? Where did it run? What was it? Where was the play? Uh, it was in, uh, we did it in Greensboro, North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. Um, I played a, a, a woman with multiple personalities. She uh, couldn't have kids, so she invented her own children with her lesbian lover. And so I played Were my they own. Her personality? Okay, wow. Yeah, so like her, she, I played myself, or I played, I played the woman, and then I played a, a three-year-old or five-year-old French boy that lived inside her and a child that she decided was raised by wolves and then the whole play was about how the partner was like, we have to stop doing this. And so she kills off those two children. Oh. So then I killed off myself as myself. Um, so basically it was like a, a control freak's dream. It's like Fight Club. It was like Fight Club. Yeah, it was a lot yeah. like Fight Club. Yeah, no, it's true. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the only role I ever played was uh, Charlie in Charlie and the Pumpkin Patch as a second grader. We well, did have... We did have grade school theater. What uh, you were the title fucking character? I just wore a stripy shirt and sang some songs. Oh my god! It's yeah. great. Wait, you didn't play like Jenny or whatever. You played right. Charlie. I was one of the two Charlies. There were two shows. <laughs> I played one, and uh, my friend Johnny Flores played the second one. Johnny wow. Flores. Yeah. How were the reviews? Uh, middling, okay. I would say. Um, okay, that's cute. It, it actually might be a two question. So, what is the worst moment of your acting career, <laughs> and why? <laughs> oh man what's mine i don't know i had i mean i don't i i had to go on stage uh for someone whose oh. house burned down in a fire and he uh right in front of us and uh he screamed so it. loud that he he had tore his vocal cords like in half and couldn't and we oh, we were shit. so this is why I moved this to Pittsburgh. This was his play. He yeah. wrote this play. We were so leveraged out of our lives for this whole thing. I mean, we spent so much time and money on this. I mean, we started a theater company with a play that cost over $60,000 to produce. It was an insane <laughs> idea. And we did it in an abandoned church, and we had to build the bathrooms inside the church. So we had to put like everything <laughs> into it. We had to build the entire like seating stage, everything. So it was like there was so much pressure and this happened on the first Friday of the first week. So suddenly we didn't have our, and he's the lead. So I had to go <laughs> on stage. House burned down. His mm-hmm. house burned the down. First, okay. Yeah, that's our first date in some ways. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's a whole thing. Um, it went up like, I mean, it was terrifying. Yeah, fast. But uh, I had to go on stage for him. And it was a character who was in a plague, like infested 
place. And one of the things that, that he does is he's breathing into a, a handkerchief. And I literally almost uh, caused myself to hyperventilate because I had never done it before. I was just on stage in front of all of these people. And then I was breathing into this like balled up rag and I started to like hyperventilate while I was on stage. I thought like the first thing I was going to do is going to like go walk out and just faint, you know. Like, <laughs> right. um, and then I almost fell off a 20 foot riser that we had created for that same play because nobody had tape marked it up there <laughs> and it went completely full black. And I just about like stepped off into the darkness. So I almost it was, like, <laughs> like crashed twice in that same production. Wow. That's me. And the pants. You had to wear his pants, and had, you were like eighteen sizes smaller, smaller than he than was, it, yeah. and so it looked like <laughs> there were like like seventeen hundreds like breaches. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a hell of a yeah, that, that was a that was, that was like trial by fire. Um, the okay, so uh, mine's audition. So I I had to audition for a a, a play about merrily singing prostitutes. Mm. It was called Cafe Putinesca, and um, there's like singers and then there's quote unquote actors who sing and that okay. I am definitely the latter meaning like I, I can get it but it's all you're going to see is someone competent there's not going to be any like Mariah okay. Carey moments Bonnie always talks about this on Saturday Night Live she's like which of the people can sing and which are just actors who can actor sing right yeah. yeah no yeah I'm definitely the actor who sings um, and um, if you can do that and dance you're called a triple threat okay I, I was not even a single threat but <laughs> But, you know, sometimes a, a, a director will be like, that's that's kind of what I want to do. I want people who are really good at comedy, and then they'll just sort of, like, muddle through the numbers. And then they gave me the number of the young ingenue prostitute, and the song was like, like that kind of thing. And I, that's how I learned it with the the guy. And, and then, da-da-ba-ba-ba-da-da-da. And then I showed up at the callback, and it was, uh, you know, me, between me and, like, two other people. Okay. And I had to sit outside while the other person who was up for the role was obviously in there and she had already started her audition. And so you she, could hear it? Yes. Okay. It was a um, like a partition. So okay. I couldn't see her, but I could hear her. And I just heard, and she went on to be, she took over for Kristen Chenoweth in Wicked. She's okay. been, she was on that John Mulaney TV show. She was on Smash. She was one of the lead characters oh, wow. in Smash. She's like, her name is Megan Hilty. She's like, but at the time, she was just like a 21-year-old CMU student. Okay. I didn't know that that was her in there. Um, I was just sitting outside and I was like, please be ugly. Please be ugly. Please be ugly. Please be ugly. <laughs> and then the door opens. And in that TV show Smash, she plays Marilyn Monroe. Okay. Blonde. D cup, like itty bitty waist and a round thing in your face. Like, and she just looked, I, I smiled and waved at her because she just was so charming. <laughs> and then I walked in and then I walked into the audition room and all of the people sitting behind the table, like in flash dance, looked like they had been like in a windstorm. Like their hair was like blown back. They were so, they had so obviously cast her. And then they were like, they started oh, to go through okay, it. Okay, Elena. And I was like, and guess what? I didn't get the part. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> All right. I have nothing like that, but just in the spirit of sharing humiliations, <laughs> I, during a high school basketball game against our biggest rival, Oh no! I, it was like very close game, very intense fourth quarter. And um, my best friend from high school still makes fun of me about this to this day. Uh, I'm running down the court. They blow the whistle for a timeout. And 
I like, you know how like you, you stop running, you take a few more steps and just eat shit. Oh, no. Just <laughs> like fell, just, I tried to turn around while I was running and just ate it right in front of the visiting crowd. Oh, like Like no. eight feet in front of them. And then I got up and it made, this is what I was getting made fun of for. I like, I pointed at the floor and I just <laughs> yelled at the manager. I was like, the floor's wet. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a poor carpenter. But my friend Marcus still sometimes will just be like, floor's wet. <laughs> Sports is theater, right? Kind of. Yeah, it's that was theater. theater. Okay. Um, all right, last one. Okay. Best performance you've ever seen in person? Mm. I've ever seen. In person, though, not like, you know, film. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I saw Mark Rylance. Uh, who won an Oscar for Bridge of Size? But before that, he like ran the Globe Theater, and he okay. did he did the Globe like Shakespeare as like it was done back in the day. So like with a jig in the middle and no okay. women, and he played Olivia in Twelfth Night, and it was just like a bunch of magic tricks. Like he, it was just you know Shakespeare, and he had on like the full Queen Elizabeth like white face and everything, but he could like. Like something would like he would pick up a cup and then all of a sudden he'd be kicking it across the stage like a soccer ball. It was so. And at one point, like I saw it by myself because uh, I, you know, it was like a ticket that only I could get like one ticket of. At one point, I realized that I had my fingers in my mouth like this because I was just so. I was watching it like a child watches yeah. like Captain Kangaroo or something. It was it was transportational. How about you? Well, I I I got to see the Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley do um, I True saw West. That too. Yeah, wow. I saw that too. And that was like, it was one of three legit standing ovations I've ever okay. seen in my life. I mean, where just you're just on your feet, like mm-hmm. you couldn't, you just were like standing up and clapping, yeah. and it had no memory of like I should stand. You know, like there's like that stupid yeah. moment in the theater where everybody else you goes, everybody, everybody else that. is getting yeah, up. I guess I'll get you it's know. Worst. But this was just like everybody shot out of their seats because these guys destroyed themselves for that play they're they end it in this mortal combat they're like beat red dripping sweat there's beer pouring off the ceiling and the whole place reeks of toast yeah and they just like killed each other to do this that show and they would swap roles you know and they knew it like inside and out in this way that i don't think like i ever shows, they would, they yeah would so you never knew you bought a ticket I was and you never knew who. until like, the lights went up yeah who was playing what huh. so the I think you and I saw it opposite. So okay. like like I saw it with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Austin, and you saw it with Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lee, right? I think we saw it the same. I saw uh, John okay. C. Riley as as Austin, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, uh, I mean Philip Seymour Hoffman as as Austin and John, and John C. Riley as Lee. Lee. That's what I saw. Um, but but it, it is the case. Like if you talk to people, they can't often imagine it the other way. And then some people were like, "Well, it works equally well both mm-hmm. ways." But it's just like at the time, I thought of John C. Riley as more of a heavy. Yeah. So it seemed yeah. it made sense to me that he'd be Lee. Um, but you know, then like after that, like he played a million like really funny and sensitive yeah. parts. You it was know, like yeah, Boogie yeah. Nights era. But he he looked 99. like the hatchet face guy yeah. that I kind of expected. You and know, he, and, then he was in and I had never seen Philip Seymour <laughs> Hoffman play. Like he does in Punch Drunk Love, you know, yeah. a really like brutal character. Um, but obviously he he had that in him, him he had every everything in him too. So Do you um, know what happened, by the way, when I saw that show? Hmm. We stood up and whatever, but the people next to us were like, you know, we saw Malkovich and oh. Sinisi do it at Steppenwolf in eighty one or whatever. <laughs> 
and this was amazing, but I saw it with my friend Brent, and they're like, and this was amazing, but like it just isn't the same. And I was like, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> but then she said, Malkovich was so insane. The whole play, the play involves like at one point the guy steals a bunch yeah. of toasters and makes a bunch of toast. It's the only play I've I've read in literature classes besides like Shakespeare. It makes sense too, just with like your general proclivities of like thinking about masculinity in the West yeah. that like that would be one that you would know. But like apparently Malkovich scattered the toast all over the floor and he made a song leaping on the toast points. So like crunch, 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 crunch. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, maybe you're right. <laughs> That's I've seen that production, but only on like archival like video, and it's amazing. Malkovich is truly amazing. Um, but you know, I and I, I think I would be like riveted by watching him do that performance. But I feel like like as an on as a piece with those two together and what they kind of built as a trajectory, I, I don't remember feeling like the energy just kind of going up and up and up and up like it did in that uh that Seymour Hoffman John C. Riley yeah. version where it was just like by the end you were it just felt like it reached this beautiful crescendo but Malkovich like you know have you ever watched any of this like have you seen that mm-hmm. he drinks he shotguns like over a six-pack of beer I mean he, he shotguns each <laughs> single he just like in one like just gulp and uh at one point I saw Gary Sinise talking to David Letterman about it and he was like, he's like, what's that maniac like to work with? And Sinisi's like, well, he's great and he's always consistent, you know? And so it's really unnerving when he's not. And he's like, we did this one thing where he would always be over my shoulder, like whispering in my ear while I was typing. And one night he's not there. He's talking from the opposite side of the stage. So I knew something was wrong. And I'm like waiting for the moment where I could turn to see him. And when he finally got that moment, he turned and Malkovich was on stage pissing underneath one of the kitchen <laughs> cabinets because he's like so full of beer. Just like, oh, wow, <laughs> we're, we're Did, there. Didn't Sinisi, you know, in Apollo 13, he's the one that has to stay home, you know, in Is the that movie. right? I've seen him so long. Like he gets like a cold yeah, or something yeah. and he has to stay home. And they were like, you did a really good like, job. And he was like, that was my life because everybody after the show was taking John Malkovich out and Robert De Niro wanted to get a beer with him. And I would just go sit in my hotel room alone <laughs> while he became the toast of American theater. Great. And he's yeah. like, so when I did Apollo 13, I just pretended like I was back in those days. Yeah. They got like notoriously sort of like the, the Steppenwolf theater in Chicago was furious that they took the play to New York. They thought like treating New York, like that was the place to make it was r- really like, like not the thing to do. And so Sinisi didn't get rocketed to stardom and he had to go back to Chicago. <laughs> People were pissed off at him. So he's like... Chicago theater rocks. Yeah. What about you? What's All the right, best should... theatrical performance you ever saw? I don't know if I have one. I went to the... Um, I did go to the Marinsky Ballet in Russia. And that Whoa. was... A, it's not a theater, but it's quite a fucking performance. I it's mean, in like, a theater. It's like if, you know, if, if you just like... If I like... If, if you're seeing like... It's like watching like... Uh, you know, Michael Jordan play or something. It's like a real fucking thing. I mean, I'm a complete ignorant, which complicated things a little bit, but, you know, you can still tell. It's still athleticism, right? It's still a body, like, doing things that you don't... And I had known my... uh, In high school, I had a friend who was a ballerina and um, was, like, almost made it to, like... like, Mm -hmm. I I don't remember what exactly happened, injuries, something like that, but, like, you know, auditioned for, like, the Cleveland Ballet, like, the real ballets, and... uh, so I knew a little bit about ballet just from what mm-hmm. she had kind of told me. Um, but yeah, that was something else. Well, that's going to be season four is nonfiction ballet. Right. America. 
So um, until then, have a great summer. Justin, I hope you have a bitchin' summer. Likewise. Now you can turn your air conditioning on and never turn it off again because we don't yeah, have to record anymore. <laughs> That's mostly why we're taking a season break. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next season. Thank you for listening to I'll Find Myself When I'm Dead, a podcast about the literary essay. Follow us on Twitter at Essay Podcast. Email us at contact at essaypodcast.com. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, just keep hanging in there.